it's uh, it's time to start. So, in terms of the um, uh, in terms of the schedule, we we're going to make some adjustments here as we go. So today we're going to do lecture six, seven, eight, and nine. And tomorrow I will do lecture 10 and we will not do um, what is uh, what, what are 11 and 12 on the schedule. So we're just running a little bit behind, but that's okay. Um, the um, lecture, lecture six, seven, eight will be on Isaiah 40 to 48. And then I'll talk about the church fathers and um, then tomorrow, and, and that will be tomorrow. Um, or sorry, tomorrow we'll conclude with what do we preach the God of the Bible. So, um, so we're looking at lecture six now, uh, the transcendent creator. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word together. And we pray that you would open our minds to the deep truth of Isaiah chapter 40. And we pray that you would help us to grasp what this means for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So obviously, chapter 40 is a pivotal book, a pivotal chapter in the book of Isaiah. And um, what happens in chapter 40 is that the prophet begins to address people who are currently in exile. Now, Isaiah lives from 740 to about somewhere around 686, 690 BC. And the exile doesn't happen until 586. So, um, obviously, what we're dealing with here is prophecy. Um, modern biblical, biblical scholarship sees chapter 40 to 66, uh, starting around the end of the 19th century, that it was begin, people began to think that, that these chapters were written by a later prophet of the exile, rather than Isaiah of Jerusalem. Um, later on, the... Um, 40 to 55 were seen as being written by a prophet during the exile, and 56 to 66 were seen as being written after the exile, based on the idea that it appears that, that the uh, topics in these chapters are topics of relevance to people during, the, during and, out, and following the exile. Now, some scholars today would deny that the reason for seeing these, path, these chapters as uh, not coming from the original prophet Isaiah. They would deny that it's because of a lack of belief in predictive prophecy, but that's not really um, viable. Uh, it's not really, uh, it, I mean, that denial, people may say that. However, um, the original impetus for, uh, for, for adopting the view that these chapters were written by a later person uh, was indeed um, that the um, that they could not have been predicted by the prophet Isaiah. In fact, a, a passage that we're going to look at today, chapter 45, actually names Cyrus as the one who would, um, 150 years in advance, who would, uh, who would actually issue the decree letting the Jews return 
And this is just seen as too specific a future prophecy to be possible. Well, I think that um, the issue of predictive prophecy in scripture in general, um, if you remove it completely from the Bible, long-term predictive prophecy, then you, uh, you have many, many problems with, with scripture. And essentially, the, the, the central fact of scripture is that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And if you don't believe in predictive prophecy being fulfilled, then you have not just a problem with certain specific books or certain chapters, but you have a problem with the structure of the Bible as a whole and with the main message of the apostles as they went out into the uh, Roman Empire to preach the gospel. I mean, Paul's main message in every place he visited was that Jesus is the Messiah predicted by the Old Testament. And, and that's why we should believe in Jesus and we should uh, worship him. And that's why people should be converted to him. It's because he fulfills the Old Testament in, in deep ways. Not just a few isolated prophecies here and there, but he, he, the, he that too, but he also fulfills the Old Testament in that is the solution to the problem that the Old Testament has. He is the, the one who, who holds everything together. Now, I, I think that it's plausible to see the ministry of Isaiah as um, undergoing a radical change around 597 to, six, uh, to, to five, uh, 697 to 686. Um, those two dates are significant because um, in, in 597, uh, Manasseh becomes co-ruler with Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you will recall, was a relatively good king. He um, attempted to uh, get rid of idolatry. He did not succeed, but he at least attempted. And Hezekiah was uh, certainly open to Isaiah's ministry. And Isaiah preached uh, openly and widely uh, between 740 and 597. How much Isaiah was able to preach after 597 is in question as Manasseh became co-ruler. Manasseh was one of the most evil kings in all of Israelite history. Uh, Manasseh, according to Jewish tradition, uh, had Isaiah killed eventually by sawing him in two. Uh, there's a reference in Hebrews 11 to those who were sawn in two, and Jewish tradition attributes that to, um, uh, it makes that, it says that that's a reference to Isaiah. Manasseh was an um, idolater. He was uh, bloodthirsty. He was, uh, he was evil in every possible way. And he would, be, he would have been implacably opposed to Isaiah's ministry. So what did Isaiah do? Well, Isaiah had presented his, um, his message uh, as he had been called to do in chapter 6. He was, he was called in chapter 6 to preach um, the holiness of God and the coming exile to the people of Israel. And um, if you if you turn to chapter six for a moment, um, in verse eight, the prophet hears God speaking, "Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us?" And then I said, "Here am I, send me." And he said, "Go and say to this people." Now, what follows is 
what Isaiah is commanded to preach. Uh, he said, he says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah is not a typical preacher going for repentance. He's not really um, tasked with the responsibility of bringing Israel back to God. Rather, he is an instrument of divine judgment, preaching that Israel is now under judgment. And Isaiah's preaching is itself part of the judgment. Now, he was called as a young man, and he had a long ministry, up to 60 years. But he knows from the beginning that the response to his preaching is going to be negative, and that Israel will not heed the warning, and that exile will come. Notice verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the people, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And so, right there at the beginning, as, as a young man, 18 or 20 years of age, Isaiah is, is given this, this calling to preach judgment on Israel, to preach the coming exile. And then you have verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So there's a little glimmer of hope there at the end, that the holy seed will grow out of the stump of Israel, and that holy seed will be the Messiah, and, and it will grow out of the stump. But notice he grows out of the stump. He doesn't descend from a glorious tree. Israel is not going to be like a glorious tree in full bloom that results in a Messiah coming forth from her. Rather, Israel is going to be a, a burned down tree, a cut down tree, a stump, and out of that stump will come the holy seed. So there is no expectation in Isaiah's mind that there is going to be um, a mass turning to God on the part of Israel and, and, uh, and, and a keeping of the law and, a, and an openness to God is such that a Messiah will be able to come without there being an exile. So Isaiah preaches exile from the beginning. Now, when Manasseh comes to the throne, um, I am supposing that Isaiah has already preached um, the message both of judgment and the message of the hope of a coming Messiah. So if you think about uh, 1 to 6, chapters 1 to 6, it's, uh, the theme is judgment. Chapter 7 to 12, the theme of the Messiah. And then 13 to 39 is uh, a series of deep reflections on the philosophy of history, the meaning of God being in control, even during the downward spiral of his people into judgment. And also um, God's judgment and sovereign, God's sovereignty over the other nations. Okay, so then in a sense, that completes Isaiah's job, that completes his mission, that completes his, uh, his whole task. He, he has done what he, was what he was commissioned to do. He has preached judgment and exile. He has declared the sovereignty of God, and he has declared that in the midst of the judgment, somehow there would be a, a Messiah who would arise out of the darkness of judgment 
and somehow God would still keep his covenant promises despite the coming exile. So what is he doing during those years when he retreats from public life and meditates more deeply on the nature of the hope? I'm sure that's what he would be doing uh, after, 590, after 697. He would be uh, he would have a small band of, of disciples, as we see in chapter eight, uh, who are looking after his writings and preserving them and collecting them. Um, he is uh, he, he is he is no longer able to really exercise influence on the king and national policy as he did with Ahab, Ahaz, and, and Hezekiah. So what is he doing in retirement? He's he's old. He's uh, he's now probably in his sixties. He is um, he is meditating, and I think that what he is meditating on, and I say this based on the existence of chapters forty to sixty six, he's meditating on the messianic hope. He's meditating on what we can believe Yahweh will do in the midst of exile. This is a very hard problem to get your mind around because exile is such a drastic uh, uh, ending to the story of Israel. It's such, a, um, it's such a, a terrible thing that how could a Messiah come out of an, an exile destroyed people? If the city will be destroyed, if the temple will be destroyed, if the, the sacrifices of the priesthood will come to an end, if the monarchy will come to an end, and there's no real hint that the monarchy is going to be restored in Isaiah, only in the sense that Messiah will come. I, I, I imagine these thoughts preoccupy the aged Isaiah. And so what, what it seems what he does in chapter 40 and following is to, to he comes to understand his role as a witness, as someone who is responsible to say in advance what Yahweh is going to do so that the generation that experiences the exile will not fall into the trap of thinking that the gods of Babylon have triumphed over the gods of Israel, over the God of Israel. Because that was the normal thing to believe in the ancient Near East, that if one nation overcame another in battle, that the winning nation's gods must be stronger than the defeated nation's gods. And it would not, and Isaiah knew it would not be easy for the people who experienced the defeat to continue to believe that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord of history. That was not going to be easy for them to do. So he, so he is concerned to, to remind them in advance that Yahweh has predicted this. This is Isaiah's role. He is to be a sign that when these events take place, that, that Yahweh has already, through his prophet, predicted they will happen, and that it is actually Yahweh using the Babylonian Empire to execute judgment on his people, rather than the Babylonians conquering Israel and defeating Yahweh. Also, I believe that the, the other big theme that occupies his meditations is the, the nature of the Messiah. And I believe that, that Isaiah is struggling to, to comprehend, and I say struggle in the sense of 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, 
which says that the prophets searched and inquired diligently what time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he spoke about the Messiah. Israel, Isaiah is searching and inquiring diligently into the nature of a Messiah that could come out of the defeated, exiled people. And I believe that, that God reveals to him through this process of meditation, the deep, deep truth never before grasped by anyone in the history of Israel, that the Messiah himself, two things about the Messiah. Number one, that the Messiah himself would suffer. And secondly, that the Messiah would be Yahweh come in the flesh. And so Isaiah begin, receives oracles that he writes down that indicate these two aspects of the messianic mission. In chapter 53, he describes the suffering servant. And then in chapter 63, he describes the anointed world conqueror. And what Isaiah is saying in these chapters is that the Messiah will come and the Messiah will suffer on behalf of Israel. He will suffer in such a way as to atone for Israel's sins. And this, this idea is already there in germ form in chapter 6. If you go back to chapter 6, the call and commission of Isaiah. You notice that um, he, he has the, in the year the King Uzziah died, 740 BC, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim and each had six wings with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. He's in the temple, and the temple is shaking because of the holiness of God. And he said, woe is me, for I am lost. This is very important, of course, by the way, for preachers to understand that they stand with the people they preach to under divine judgment. That's what Isaiah is experiencing here. He doesn't say, I'm so glad that God is going to punish these sinners. He's not like the Pharisee in the, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who, who says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these sinners. No, Isaiah identifies with his own people. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, here comes the germ of the idea of atonement. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. In chapter 53 and verse 10, we're going to read about the suffering servant that Sorry, I have, uh, that's the wrong verse. What I meant is 53 verse, uh, um, uh, 
Oh, yes, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So Isaiah experiences atonement in his call, and he later teaches that the servant will make atonement for the sins of Israel. So this idea of atonement <coughs> through suffering is, is central to his concept of what the Messiah will do. And the Messiah will not simply come and, and effect a political solution to Israel's woes, but the Messiah will come and deal with the deeper problem of sin and will effect atonement for sin. And those who put their trust in the Messiah will then be able to be forgiven and stand before God guiltless. And this is why the Messiah is able to absorb the wrath of God, but continue to live. At the end of chapter 53, it talks about um, how, the, how the servant is able to, um, to in, have an inheritance, to, to live after, after suffering and dying. He, is, he continues to live. And the nation Israel cannot live on its own. The nation Israel is going to die in the exile, but those who put their faith in the Messiah will live on. What's the difference between the Messiah and Israel? That's the deep mystery. The, 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 there, is no, there is no salvation for the Gentiles coming out of Israel as a nation. The salvation for the Gentiles only comes out of the servant. What's the difference between the servant and the nation? Well, that's, that, is the, that is the deep mystery that is probed and explored in Isaiah 40 to 53. And it is that, that the Messiah is actually Yahweh returned to Zion. And when Yahweh in the form of the servant absorbs the, the guilt and the sin that is uh, due to, to, to Israel, when the wrath of God falls on God in the form of the servant, God in the form of the servant survives. Israel does not. The point of Isaiah's message, the, the main thing he's trying to convey to Israel is that because of Israel's sin and God's holiness, Israel will be destroyed in the exile. And so if Yahweh himself didn't come and make atonement for the nation and be the Messiah, then, then the whole thing would be over, the whole Abrahamic covenant, the whole Davidic covenant, would come crashing to an end and it would not it would never be fulfilled only because Yahweh in the form of the suffering servant bears this the wrath of, of the holiness of God only because of that does the is the nation enabled to is the is salvation possible now you you then see uh the the servant in chapter 63 you have a, a picture of the anointed world conqueror and that idea of messiah is a is the idea that is prominent in in the first century in jesus day they see the messiah as the warrior king the the one who will come and defeat israel's enemies and and uh, sit on the throne of david and rule forever and the gentile nations will stream up to jerusalem to receive the law from him that's who they think the messiah is what jesus understood is that Isaiah's deep meditations on the nature of the Messiah 
mean that the Messiah will be both the suffering servant and the anointed world conqueror and will come twice, the first time to suffer, the second time to judge. And the judgment has to follow the suffering because the suffering is the, is the, the means of the atonement by which people can survive the judgment of God, those who put their faith in the Messiah. And that's why the, the book of Isaiah, once the suffering servant happens, you have chapter 54, um, which is a call to, to, uh, to Israel. Chapter 54 and 55 is a call to faith. And it corresponds to the first half of the book of Acts, where salvation is first, as Paul tells us repeatedly, is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so the, the first half of Acts, where the gospel comes to the Jews, where salvation comes to the Jews, is paralleled in chapters 54 and 55, where you have the call to Israel to believe. And then in chapter 56, you have a, this is parallel to the second half of the book of Acts, where salvation goes to the Gentiles. And when the book of Acts, it begins in Jerusalem, ends in, in Rome. Uh, the first half is about Peter, the apostle to the Jews. The second half is about Peter, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And the, the point is that the message of salvation goes out to the entire world, just as Jesus said, uh, you know, to, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And just as, uh, as Acts 1.8 says, beginning in Judea, that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth, this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that God would bless Israel and the nations through Israel. And it is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because the Messiah will sit on the throne of David and rule forever. This, these meditations of Isaiah make up the second half of the book of Isaiah from 40 to 66. Isaiah, you know, the, the critics uh, don't believe that, um, that, that Isaiah of Jerusalem could have written um, a predictive prophecy like we find in chapter 45 that is so specific as to name uh, the Cyrus. They, they, they find that incredible and hard to believe. Well, I have bad news for them because Isaiah doesn't just predict Cyrus. Isaiah predicts Jesus. Isaiah predicts the coming of the Messiah. He predicts the, uh, the, the day of Pentecost and the gospel going to the Jews. He predicts the, the, the mission to the Gentiles. He predicts, in, in effect, Paul's whole mission. Paul's whole self-understanding of what he's doing in the Gentile mission is rooted and based in Isaiah. Isaiah not only predicts the first coming of Jesus, he predicts the second coming of Jesus. He predicts the, the, what we see in Revelation chapter 19. Um, Isaiah predicts the whole sweep of God's plan for human history from the exile to the second coming and the eternal state. So predictive prophecy, not just about 150 years, it's about the entirety of human history. And, and if we can't believe that Isaiah could predict uh, the name of the king who would issue the decree to let Israel return 150 years after the exile, 538 BC, 
Uh, if you can't believe that he could predict a little thing like that, how can you believe that he could predict a big thing like the two-stage coming of the Messiah and the consummation of history? Um, of course, the predictions are vague. Of course, the predictions are mysterious. Of course, Isaiah does not understand details. And Isaiah says he speaks more than he knows. The, the oracles that he receives, remember, he's a prophet. He receives these oracles and he doesn't fully understand them. He sees himself as a messenger, a spokesman. God gives him these, these visions. He has this vision of a, uh, uh, of a suffering servant. Isaiah's never seen a crucifixion, probably. And yet, the description of what he sees, he doesn't use the word crucifixion, but it corresponds to a crucifixion because it's, it's something that's happening that he sees and doesn't fully understand, but he says, this is what I've seen. This is what, this is what God is saying. There are times in our preaching when we have to uh, say things and talk about things that are true and that we know to be true, but which are not completely comprehensible. And this is uh, an example. When we look back on how Isaiah 53 predicts Jesus, it's very much more clear to us in retrospect than it was to Isaiah looking forward to those events. It's true. But we stand in relation to the second coming in much the same way that Isaiah stood in relation to the first coming. And that's why there's so much disagreement about eschatology. Uh, in, in, you know, we, we shouldn't be surprised that premillennialists and postmillennialists and amillennialists disagree with each other so much. We shouldn't be surprised that people disagree about how much of um, the predictions of Jesus were fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Some people think that most of the book of Revelation is, is, uh, is fulfilled by the events of 70 AD. Others think that only a very few parts of it are fulfilled and that much, much, much more is future. We agree um, that something is going to happen that involves the return of the Messiah and the, the judgment of the nations and the, and, the, uh, um, and, and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. We all agree that these things are going to happen. The order in which they happen and the details around them are vague to us. And I'm, I'm just saying, we shouldn't worry about that. We, we shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't think there's anything wrong with, with, with this situation. Um, just as there was nothing wrong with Isaiah seeing so much of the future, but understanding it so little. And there's nothing wrong with us seeing so much of the future, but understanding it so little as when we read his writings. Um, we should be reassured by the fact that now looking back on the death and resurrection of Christ, we understand that so much more deeply, especially as the result of the writings of the apostles, like the book of Romans, where we understand it so much more clearly than anybody did before it happened. We should be encouraged by the fact that someday we'll look back on the second coming of Christ and see it clearly in exactly the same way as we look back now on the first coming of Christ. So Isaiah is predicting um, 
how he's dealing with this problem. If God is holy and Israel is unholy, but God has made irrevocable promises to Israel. And if the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant must be fulfilled because the character of God is to be to fulfill his word. But at the same time, God is, has decreed that Israel will be judged by the foreign nations and go into exile. And especially that the temple will be destroyed and that the uh, Davidic monarchy will come to an end. If all these things are true, how do we put all these facts together? That's what Isaiah 42, 66 is, is, is thinking about and focused on. Now, I want to, I want to make one last point about this that, uh, by way of introduction, and that is that what we are going to see in chapter 40 is a focus, which I think is of direct importance and relevance to us today. Okay, so I've just described what Isaiah is preoccupied with. I want you to notice that what he does in chapter 40 is not to focus on, as many evangelicals do today, the exact or speculation about the exact sequence of events surrounding the future actions of God in history. Rather, he focuses on the nature of God. He focuses on the nature of God in chapter 40. In fact, uh, I would argue, and I am arguing, that he focuses on the nature of God in chapter 40 to 48 as a whole. Because it's, it's more important that the people of God know who God is than that they know the exact details of the sequence of events by which God will effect his plan in history. They need to know that God has a plan in history. They need to know that God is in charge of history. They need to know that history is heading in a certain direction. They do not need to know all of the details about the sequence of events and how they will all unfold exactly. But they need to be reassured and they need to be clear on the nature of the God that we worship. Therefore, I argue that the most important uh, part of Isaiah 40 to 66 is these first nine foundational chapters, 40 to 48. Because here we see Isaiah presenting the nature of God. And once you know and you believe in this God, you can trust that everything in the future is going to work out, even though you don't know in advance every detail of how that's going to happen. So I don't think you can separate the nature of God from predictive prophecy. And I will, I will, I, I'm convinced that, that for Isaiah, in his situation, speaking 150 years before the exile, but writing prophecy for intending for that prophecy to be read during the exile, prediction is absolutely necessary. There, in other words, not every detail of the future must be specified by the prophet here, but certain details must be given 
in order to validate and prove that God is sovereign over history and in control. So Isaiah's giving, giving the name of Cyrus is not, is not idle speculation. He's not satisfying the idle speculation of people curious to know interesting facts about the future. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to demonstrate that Yahweh is in control of the pagan empires, as well as in control of the fate of Israel. That Yahweh is not merely the tribal God of the Jews, but he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the Lord who is in control of emperors who think they're in control. And the only way that that could be conveyed uh, adequately was by means of a predictive prophecy. And that's why we will find that the prediction of Cyrus's name is at the heart of these nine chapters, right in the very middle. Everything leads up to it and follows from that. And the point of the revelation is not simply to satisfy idle curiosity. It is to demonstrate the nature of Yahweh. The nature of God is the point. The predictive prophecy is a way of making the point. Okay. Um, so we're just about to, to go to coffee break. Um, so I just want to say a few more things to introduce chapter 40, and then we will jump into a verse-by-verse -verse look at chapter 40 after the break. Um, the situation of the exiles is described in Psalm 137, verses 1 and 4. So if, you, if you, have, you need your Bibles this morning, we'll be looking at a lot of passages, reading a lot of passages. So keep your Bible handy and open. Turn to Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Okay, that is the question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Um, it's not a matter, the question, the question is not just a matter of emotions. Sure, they feel sad that they're in Babylon. Uh, their, their captors are, are, are requiring them to act like they're happy, but they don't feel happy. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. But this is not just an issue, the how shall we sing is not just an issue of, of the emotions they feel. The issue is, can we actually believe in our religion now that Jerusalem has been destroyed and we're captives in Babylon? Can we really continue to hold to the hope of our forefathers? Can we believe that the covenant is eternal that God made with David? Can we believe that the covenant is eternal that God made with Abraham? Remember, these covenants were unconditional, unlike the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. If you 
refrain from idolatry and keep my commandment and obey my law, then you will live long in the land and prosper. That's the message of Deuteronomy. But if you if you go after the I, the uh, the gods of the nations and worship them, then the land will vomit you out. That's what Deuteronomy says. It's a conditional. The Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. But when you read Genesis chapter 12, there's no conditions. God simply says to Abraham, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make a nation out of you and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. No conditions. Not, not, not if Abraham is faithful enough, he'll do this. He's just going to do it. The same with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. God says that someone will sit on the throne, a descendant of David will sit on his throne forever. Um, the faithfulness or lack thereof of the successors of David will determine uh, whether exile comes, but they will not determine whether the covenant is kept. Well, when you're sitting on the banks of the river in Babylon, can you believe that? That's the issue. That is the, that is the issue that is taken up by Isaiah in chapter 40. And Isaiah's answer is, you can believe it not because um, you put your faith in the faithfulness of the people of Israel, because that's obviously a broken reed. You, you can believe this not because uh, the, the foreign empires are really good guys. We know they're not. You can believe this because of the nature of God. So that's what he talks about in chapter 40. What is the nature of God? So we'll take a break now and we'll come back to go through chapter 40, uh, section by section. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's uh, get back to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. So, as we look at the beginning of chapter 40, the opening words are ones of comfort. Um, <clears throat> this is just, this is, uh, this should, or this should get our attention because for 39 chapters, Isaiah has been carrying out the commission given to him in chapter six, where he has preached judgment. Suddenly, the message changes to comfort. Comfort, comfort my people says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. This is uh, an astonishing change of tone in the prophet's message. Um, what we see here in chapter 40 is a divine council scene. Um, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Um, the voice that is, that is speaking seems to be a heavenly voice. And the message has to do with 
um, a second exodus where the exiles will be rescued from Babylon in the way that Israel was, ex was, re was rescued from Egypt. Um, there's so much here um, that we can, we, we, we could talk about. Um, so many connections to the New Testament, uh, including John the Baptist as the voice and, and uh, echoing this voice in the divine council. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the background for a minute. So in the mythological, in the mythology of the ancient Near Eastern culture around Israel, um, if we think of this, of the religion of the Canaanites, for example, but the Egyptians and Mesopotamians as well, if we think about this relig pagan religion that surrounds Israel as having been taught to humanity by fallen angelic beings who were worshiped in those religions, we will be adopting the viewpoint of the biblical writers. We need to leave behind the materialism of the modern world and think of the Exodus from the perspective of Israel. Um, the Bible, is unified in seeing the reality as having a spiritual dimension as well as a material dimension. And I wanna say something here, which is going to sound shocking perhaps, but we have to think about this. The biblical worldview that is behind Isaiah 40 is closer in some ways to ancient Near Eastern mythology than it is to modern materialism. Um, in, in Colossians chapter one, um, Paul writes about Jesus uh, in verse 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Um, Paul has the same worldview as Isaiah in that neither one of them are materialists. Both of them believe that there's a spiritual reality that exists and is real they believe, uh, Paul believes that Christ is uh, the, the son, the word, the image. And so the son is different from these other spiritual entities, the thrones, powers, dominions, and so on. Just as the New Testament, and the locus classicus here would be Hebrews 1, 5 to 15, just as the New Testament goes to great pains to distinguish between the status of the sun and angels. So Isaiah and the Old Testament go to great lengths to distinguish between the status of Yahweh and the gods of the nations. But that does not entail saying that the gods of the nations are non-existent. They're not just figments of your imagination. 
when we think about angels, you know that the Hebrew word malak and the Greek word angelos both mean messenger. And we certainly see the angels functioning as messengers at various points in scripture, like Gabriel coming to announce the birth of, of Jesus to Mary. However, the New Testament and the Old use many other terms to describe beings who exercise ruling functions in the cosmos, thrones, dominions, powers, rulers, authorities, in Ephesians 6, for example. Paul also mentions the devil and cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as I said, Hebrews interprets Christ as being above all these things and different from them. He's not just another one of them. Now, in one of the reasons why some scholars argue that chapters 40 to 66 must be from the exile is they think that the, the picture of religion here is, um, is best understood against the backdrop of Mesopotamian religion. I, however, believe that uh, the discovery of the, the Raj Shamra tablets in 1929, or the Ugaritic literature, um, demonstrates that the background could easily be Canaan. Um, when we study, when we, when we look at the Ugaritic materials, this was uh, these are tablets, thousands of clay tablets dug up in, in a city in northern Syria. Uh, Ugarit was a city like Tyre and Sidon in that area, and uh, they were discovered in 1929, later deciphered. And Ugaritic is a West Semitic language of its own, and scholars had to figure it out and learn it. But when they did, they they, they were able to read the tablets, and many of the tablets were. Uh, things to do with shipping and trade and, and commercial, but many of them also were religious, apparently from a temple. And they were, they, they described the Canaanite pantheon of gods. They described the uh, Baal and, and various other named gods of the Canaanites. And they give us a tremendous amount of insight into the nature of Canaanite religion. The Elijah cycle in 1 Kings 17 to 22 describes the battle between the prophets of Yahweh and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who attempted to introduce Baal worship into Israel. So they attempted to bring the uh, kind of religion described in the Ugaritic uh, literature into Israel, and they were opposed by Ahab by uh, Elijah and Elisha. The reason that the prophets resisted was not that the pagan gods were unreal, but that to worship them violated the Mosaic Covenant. And this is the background against which we must interpret the exodus from Egypt. What, what Isaiah understands the way that Isaiah understands the exodus from Egypt is that he understands it as a contest of the gods. Now, we saw yesterday that Exodus 3, 14, and 15 reveals the uh, mysterious name of God, I am that I am, Yahweh, which is interpreted by, uh, by Thomas Aquinas as he who is. Now, 
I believe that what happened, that what, what we're talking about here, that the way that we understand Isaiah 3, 14 to 15 and Genesis 1, 1 is that these two texts must be read side by side and contemplate it in the light of each other. When, when Moses was writing uh, Genesis, I believe that he, he begins with 1, 1 because he understands the God of Israel to be the transcendent creator of all things, not just as the first among equals, as El was the first among equals in the Canaanite pantheon. And the statement that, that God is, I am that I am, indicates that he exists in a different way than the gods. He exists eternally. And therefore, that's why Genesis 1-1 begins with Yahweh. In the beginning, God created. God was already there because God has never not existed. God's existence is eternal. And therefore, God is there and he creates everything. And the everything that is created includes the spiritual entities that later rebel against his rule and become the gods of the nations. And so when Isaiah 40 describes, uses the language of Exodus in verses three to five, and the describes the, the bringing of the captives along the, the highway from Babylon to Jerusalem, um, and, and especially the reference in verse five, and all flesh shall see it together, this, what is being pictured here is a new exodus. And the old exodus in which the Pharaoh was humiliated and the gods of Egypt were humiliated in the plagues, the, the gods of Egypt were humiliated in the plagues, Pharaoh in the Red Sea uh, battle. Just as that was a public humiliation of the gods of Egypt by the God of Israel. So, the new exodus will be a public humiliation of the gods of Babylon by the God of Israel. And the form of this humiliation will be that Yahweh will reveal himself to have been using the pagan empires all along because his prophet will predict that, that, the, uh, that the exile will not be permanent, but that the, 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 but the one who's actually used to judge Babylon, Cyrus, will be uh, the one who allows Israel to return. So this divine council scene that we see here in verses one to five, where there are voices and they're not, it's not clear who the speakers are. Um, when Isaiah hears the voice, comfort, comfort, my people says your God, this appears to be God speaking but who is he speaking to? He seems to be speaking to other spiritual beings who make up a council or a, a group of beings that he's addressing. Um, the divine council idea is seen in Job 1 and 2. It's seen in, in other places in scripture, and we'll talk more about it later. But what, what, what is happening is that the prophet is getting, he's overhearing conversations in the heavens that give him insight into the future. 
Um, but it's creation out of nothing that makes Yahweh sovereign. It's creation. It's the fact that Yahweh is the creator that makes him different from all these other gods. Whether they're unfallen ones that he are his messengers and servants and rulers, ones he rules through, or whether they are the rebellious ones who have rebelled against his, his, just, his justice. So the, the new exodus is described, and then you have, um, you have the key verse in the chapter, verse 9, which is, Behold your God. And um, this, this verse is one that, that describes, uh, that, that says to Israel, I want, Isaiah is saying to the, to the, to the future exiles, Behold your God. In other words, the rest of the chapter is a description of the God of creation and exodus. So look, for example, at, um, we'll just look at, at verse 9 and 10 for a moment. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And then in the next verses from verses 12 to 20, we see God as creator. And he is the only one. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? This is the first time that we see this, but it becomes a refrain throughout these nine chapters where God continuously says, how, who will you compare me to? And the uniqueness of God is constantly reiterated. That Israel's God is unique because Israel's God can effect an exodus like he did in, with Egypt, like he's going to do with Babylon, but he can do it because he's the creator. He is on a different plane of existence altogether than these other gods of the nations. They're just creatures, but he's the creator. He's the sovereign Lord there within his sovereign control. They do his bidding even when they think they're, they're doing what they want to do. The mystery of divine sovereignty is such that, that the Babylonians think that they are conquering Jerusalem because that's what they want to do, and it proves their superiority and might. But in actual fact, they are merely tools in the hands of the sovereign God doing what he wants them to do, even though they don't know it. Do you, and then verses 21 to 26, God is the Lord of history. We, the, the second theme of these chapters is introduced. And again, the refrain, verse 25, to whom will you compare me? And then verse 26, lift up your eyes and see who created these. Why is God sovereign over the, the stars and the sun and the moon and the, and the shrubs and the vegetation of the earth because he created all of them. And then verse 27, the prophet addresses Jacob. And you could think of him as addressing the people who say what we noticed in Psalm 137. How can we sing the, the songs of the Lord in a strange land? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God? Have you not known? 
Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow fear, wait, faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall, be, shall, shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who are sitting in Babylon who put their trust in the Lord and wait for him, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I just want to mention Psalm 74 for a moment. If you turn to Psalm 74, um, and, and again, here is one of the clearest examples, I think, of uh, how historical criticism gets everything right and everything wrong simultaneously. Um, because we, you know, as I said yesterday, there is a relationship between Canaanite mythology and Old Testament theology. There is a relationship between uh, how, um, be, as I said this morning, there, there is a sense, it, there is a point of agreement between mythology and Old Testament theology, and that is the existence of a spiritual realm and spiritual entities that uh, some of whom are God's servants and some of whom are in rebellion. Both the, the, uh, both the Canaanite mythology and, and Old Testament theology agree that there is such a thing as a spiritual realm, and there are spiritual beings who participate in ruling creation under God's sovereignty. But in Psalm 74, uh, there is a, uh, there, there's a reference to the, um, the mythical sea monsters that are part of ancient Near Eastern mythology. So look at verse 13, or look, look at verse 12. Yet, my, yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Now, historical criticism looks at the reference to Leviathan here and says, well, here's a, a fragment, a remaining fragment of, of Canaanite mythology right here in the faith of Israel. And so that proves to them that they think that proves that, that uh, Israelite theology evolved out of Canaanite mythology. They think that, that uh, uh, this is a surviving remnant of Canaanite mythology, they think. This is a surviving remnant of the, the, the myth of God battling the chaos monster like Marduk battles Tiamat. They think that this is a, a, a remnant of, this, this of a polytheistic worldview in which uh, Yahweh is not the only God, but he's battling the other gods. Well, that's all right, and it's all wrong. Um, there, it is true that the psalmist here uses a mythological creature, the Leviathan, uh, 
and that that is something that is in common with uh, with the um, with the ancient Near Eastern mythology. So he's using it, but why is he using it? What is he doing with it? Is he just unthinkingly um, going along with the mythological idea of the gods battling the chaos monster? Or is he correcting that idea in a significant way? If you look back in um, Genesis chapter one, verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. So there, the great sea creatures are created and they're good and they're not battling against God's sovereignty. Canaanite mythology uses these great sea creatures as symbols of the opposition to the gods, the symbols of chaos. And then you see Psalm 74, God breaks the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crush the head of Leviathan. Well, historical critics read that and say, well, obviously, uh, Israel you know, obviously, this is a remnant of Canaanite mythology in the in the faith of Israel, and they're saying the same thing as the myths say, that God battles the chaos monster. But notice that a couple of things about Psalm 74. First of all, there is a battle going on there. The Leviathan gets his head crushed by the Lord. But this battle does not occur in creation, it occurs in redemption. It does not occur in Genesis 1, it occurs after Genesis 3. And how do we know that? Well, because isn't it strange that the sea monsters become food for the creatures of the desert? What's up with that? Why does it say that you divided the sea by your might? You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. How does the Leviathan get from the ocean to being food for the creatures of the wilderness? And what does he mean by you divided the sea by your might? Folks, this is Exodus language. This is talking about the Red Sea. God divides the Red Sea, and then Leviathan is here functioning as a symbol of Pharaoh, and he crushes Pharaoh, and they become food for the desert animals because they are floating in the Red Sea in the middle of the desert. What, what is happening is that the the Old Testament is using Canaanite mythology, but it is using it, it's changing the, the, the meaning. It agrees with Canaanite mythology that, that there are spiritual forces in opposition to God and rebellion against God. But it does not agree that that is an inherent part of the creation. It says that that is something that happens 
after the creation as a result of the fall. And God battles the, the, the symbolic sea monsters of chaos here in the sense that God battles against the evil fallen spiritual entities that are in rebellion against his rule and which are worshipped in pagan religion, such as in the religion of Egypt. So God is, is the one who is in charge of, of, uh, of, of these sea monsters. These sea monsters represent the pagan empires. Uh, in Psalm 74, it's, it's Egypt that is in view. But the point is that in, in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is using Exodus language to describe the sovereignty of God over the Babylonians. God is as sovereign over Babylon as he is over Egypt. Okay, that's that's the um, that is the I think some background that helps us understand Isaiah forty. Um, now I want to turn to the next lecture and the sovereign Lord of History, because these two things are very closely interwoven. God is sovereign Lord of History, and God is the transcendent Creator. Okay, so we've already said, I've already, I've already stressed that, that uh, in chapters 41 to 48, Isaiah develops the implications of the idea of Yahweh as transcendent creator for Yahweh's sovereignty over history. And I've already said that the, the Cyrus poem in chapter 44 is going to be central to this. The prophecy of the name of Cyrus is going to be a signifier of the uh, a, a demonstration of the sovereignty of, of Yahweh in history. So we're, we need to consider further the, uh, the idea of God's sovereignty over history. So as I said earlier in the introduction, preventing the exile is not the point of Isaiah's ministry. Explaining the meaning of the exile and proclaiming hope beyond the exile is the point of Isaiah's ministry. And uh, again, modern historical critics often say that the Old Testament prophets were only concerned with their own generation, short-term prophecy, not long-term. That just does not seem to me to be the case here. Isaiah, as I say, is not only interested in predicting 100 or 150 years in the future, he's interested in predicting the end of human history, the second coming of Christ. So he is concerned with the entire meaning of history considered as a whole. So what we see is that in, in the second half of Isaiah, 40 to 66, chapters 41 to 53 lead up to the suffering servant. Then 54 to 66 is a message of hope for Israel and the nations. It's a call to faith in the, in the suffering servant. As I said, 54, 55 uh, parallel the first half of the book of Acts and the messages to Israel. 56 parallels the second half of Acts and the messages to the Gentiles. Now, Isaiah 41 to 53 
can be divided into two subsections, 41 to 48 and 49 to 53. And these two subsections are dominated by two uh, main figures, um, Cyrus and the suffering servant. And in the first section, 41 to 48, Isaiah wants to assure his contemporaries and the exiles and all who will believe eventually, including us, that because of the nature of the God they serve, their hope is not in vain. He wants them to know that the pagan empires are putty in the hands of the Lord who uses them as his instruments of judgment. The pagan empires will be used both to remove Israel from the land and to restore Israel to the land. Um, in 41 to 48, Cyrus will be the solution to the, the small problem. Israel has two problems in the exile, a political problem and a sin problem. The political problem, from Isaiah's perspective, is the smaller problem. The sin problem is the greater problem. And, and you see this in the ministry of Jesus. You know, they want Jesus to be a a fire and brimstone Messiah who leads a military uprising to get rid of the Romans. Why does Jesus refuse to do that? Not because he isn't going to judge the Romans someday in his second coming. The reason he doesn't do it is because if all he did was a political revolution and set Israel up as an independent nation once again, he knows, just as Isaiah knows, that all that would happen is that Israel would fall back into idolatry and sin again. Because without dealing with the sin problem, there's no point in solving the political problem. And yet the political problem has to be solved to a certain extent in order that the sin problem can be eventually solved. By that I mean that Israel has to be restored to the land so that the Messiah can emerge. So Isaiah uses predictive prophecy to demonstrate that Yahweh is in charge of history. So 41 to 48 deals with Cyrus and the political problem. 49 to 53 deals with the suffering servant and the sin problem. And here's something that I think is uh, very significant for those of us who take biblical inspiration and authority with great seriousness. It seems to me that the message of Isaiah is that when you see his prophecy of Isaiah uh, allowing Israel to return to the land after the exile, you are to be encouraged by that to believe that God will not only solve the political problem, but eventually also solve the sin problem by sending the Messiah in the form of the suffering servant. So the people who lived all the time between the exile and coming of Christ, the 400 years, those people were, they had the, the fact of the restoration of Israel to the land as evidence that they could believe that God was in charge of this whole process and that the, the answer, the Messiah was coming. And this, I believe, is why... Um, the book of Acts, the book of Psalms, for example, is messianic. 
Um, the psalm, the psalter is put together in the exile. Um, the final, the final psalter, much of the psalter, books two and three, uh, go back, or one and one to three go back to David, but the later parts of the psalter are arranged and and the and the the psalms are put together in the exile. And what is fascinating to notice is that books four and five of the Psalter contain Davidic Messianic Psalms, even though books four and five are compiled after the end of the Davidic monarchy. What does this tell you? It tells you that the Messianic hope that God would put a descendant of David on the throne of David forever remained alive in Israel during the exile and post-exilic period. And we see that this, this messianic hope continued and was fervently embraced by the Jews, even in the time of Jesus. We see this in the Gospels. And so what this means is that if Isaiah's logic is, look, you can, you can trust that God will bring the Messiah because you will have seen him restore Israel to the land. If, if the prediction of the, the political restoration of Israel to the land from under Cyrus is evidence for the trustworthiness of the promise of the coming Messiah, well, then it, it takes on an, an importance that, that, the, that historical critics uh, just totally miss. The importance of the prediction of, Isaiah, of Cyrus's name is not just that it's a neat trick to make a prediction that specific, the point is that this is meant to reassure Israel that the Messianic hope will come true. So this is why the decree of Cyrus is predicted and Cyrus is named. And by the way, one thing you should notice as you read Isaiah is that all through Isaiah 1 to 39, the Lord is often portrayed as waiting waiting for Israel to respond, waiting for Israel to decide. But in 40 to 66, God is acting. God's doing stuff. He is, he is the, the active agent in bringing about redemption. And so it's as if Isaiah was saying, the Lord has given Israel a long time between David and the exile many, many, many centuries, the five centuries, opportunities to repent from, from David, you know, 1000 BC, roughly to 586 BC, the Lord has been patient and slow to anger. And he has waited for Israel to repent, but Israel has not repented. And so after the exile, God's finished with waiting. He's now actively acting in history. He, first of all, uses Babylon to judge Israel. Then he uses Persia to restore Israel. And then he works in Israel to bring about the Messiah. Then he sends the Messiah. Then the Messiah dies on the cross and solves the, the, the sin problem. And then the message is taken out to the nations. All through the period from the exile to the second coming of Christ, Yahweh is active in history doing things. Okay, Cyrus the Great. 
Cyrus is mentioned 23 times in the Bible. Um, at the center of Isaiah 40 to 40, 41 to 48 is what Oswald T. Alice calls the prophetical poem celebrating the transcendence of the Lord God of Israel. It's the prophetic poem celebrating the transcendence of the Lord God of Israel. And um, Cyrus is uh, alluded to first in Isaiah 41. Look at verses 25 to 26. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come, from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. So this one from the north is a, is a very uh, vague allusion to, to Cyrus. A again, you don't really, you wouldn't really know that this is an allusion to Cyrus unless you had read all of chapters one to 48. But, but again, when you have read the chapters one to 48 and you are now looking at this text again, you see this is the first mention of Cyrus. And then, um, sorry, not the first mention, I, I, I skipped one. In verses two to five of 41, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? That's the first allusion to Cyrus. 25, 26 is the second allusion. So in 2 to 5 and 25 to 26, we see these allusions to Cyrus. Um, Cyrus is also mentioned in Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. Um, it's, it, here we can actually read the decree of Cyrus. Um, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, and besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. In 2019, I was in the British Museum and I saw the Cyrus cylinder. And it gave me goosebumps to, to, to see a decree issued from this Persian king. God really does act in history. And that's the message of Isaiah. So the, the, the decree sounds as though Cyrus believes in Yahweh. I don't think it's necessary to think that he did. Um, poly, pagan polytheists are uh, notably respectful of the gods of other nations when they speak about them. That's, that's ancient Near Eastern diplomacy. Um, as Cyrus may simply be saying in this decree, uh, the God of Israel 
the Israelites believe that the God of Israel is the true God. And I'm respecting that belief. It doesn't mean that he has personal faith in Yahweh. He could. Or he could have wavered back and forth between faith and non-faith. We don't know. Um, the prophet Isaiah is not really interested in giving us insight into the psychology of Cyrus. The, you know, we don't really get to read his thoughts and know his heart. The emphasis of Isaiah is on how Yahweh uses Cyrus in history, regardless of what Cyrus in his heart really believes. Back to Isaiah 41 to 43, 48. In 43, 14, and 15, we see, um, we see the, another reference to Cyrus. 43, 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your God, the creator of Israel, your king. This could be a reference to uh, Babylon being taken over by Cyrus, which he did. And so Cyrus is used to judge Babylon as Moses is used to judge Egypt. Um, Egypt enslaves Israel, but then Egypt gets judged. That's the pattern that Isaiah says is going to be followed in the exile as well. Babylon is used to judge Israel, but then Babylon gets judged as well. The Abrahamic covenant is still in force. Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Then in 44, 24 to 28, we have the revelation of the name in the Cyrus poem. Now, in my book, uh, on pages 161 and following, I discuss this poem in detail, uh, making use of the incredibly good work, I think, by Oswald T. Alice in his book, The Unity of Isaiah. Um, if you look at chapter 44, and you go to verses uh, 24 to 28, you see here a poem. And this poem is... Uh, the center of this entire section. Um, just one second here, let me find something. Yeah, so we can outline this poem as follows. The main, the introduction, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, verse 24. We're in Isaiah 44, verse 24. And then you have the main statement. I am the Lord. Um, I don't think personally that this uh, is an accident. I think the, the phrase I am is a, is a veiled allusion back to Exodus 3, 14 or 15. I am the Lord. The Lord being the name revealed in Exodus 3, 14 or 15. So the main statement is I am the Lord. So the poem is about the Lord. It's not about Cyrus. It is about Cyrus, but it's about the Lord, really. Then you have three stanzas. Stanza number one. Um, these three stanzas, by the way, are descriptions of the Lord. So stanza number one, 
Line one, who made all things. Line two, who stretched out the heavens. Line three, who spread out the earth by myself. Then stanza two, who frustrates the signs of liars, who turns the wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servants and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Stanza three, line seven, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Line eight, who says to the deep be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Line nine, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So you have nine relative clauses arranged in three stanzas. <clears throat> Translated, I think, correctly in the ESV, uh, using the term who in each case at the beginning of each of these nine lines. You can see that the lines increase in length from stanza one, uh, one clause each, to stanza two, two clauses each, to stanza three, um, three lines, three, three clauses in each one. Except that there's a variation in the final two lines. In line seven, you have three clauses. Line eight, only two. And then line nine, four. Alice argues that this is a, uh, an example of how you place an emphasis in Hebrew poetry. Are we, are, we out of, are we supposed to be taking a break? I think we are. I'm gonna just hold off on the break for a minute here to finish this poem. And then we'll, we'll take a, a short break. Um, it's 7.14 and we're supposed to be, we're supposed to have taken a break from 10 to 15. So we'll just take a break in a minute. Just, just hold on. So you, you can see that the variation in the length of the lines, three, two, one. So you, so you get one stanza one, one clause, stanza two, two clauses, stanza three should be three clauses. But instead of three, 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 it's three, two, four. So what this does is it puts the emphasis on the ninth line. It's the climax of the poem. And what do we find in line nine? We find the revelation of the name of Cyrus. So this poem is a special insert in the middle of the, of the section. Now, one of the theories that critics have suggested is that um, uh, maybe, the, maybe the poem was written by Isaiah of Jerusalem, but then later a scribe writing, uh, in, uh, copying the manuscript after the decree of Cyrus in 538, inserted the name of Cyrus in the uh, margin, uh, and then it gradually worked its way into the text. Um, I think Alice's analysis renders that theory impossible because the, um, because the point of the poem leads up to the name of Cyrus as a climax. And the poem itself is the climax and center and heart of the whole section. As we will see, there are allusions to Cyrus uh, leading up between 41 and 43, 
we've already seen three allusions to Cyrus's uh, to Cyrus as the person without him being named. And then we have the revelation of the name. We're going to see several more references to Cyrus in 45 to 48, so that every chapter in this section deals with Cyrus in one way or another. And so the idea that it was uh, just some sort of accident that his name found his way into uh, this section is just not tenable. The, the point of the section is to identify Cyrus's, Cyrus and his decree as evidence of the Lord's sovereignty in history. In 45, 1 to 8, Cyrus is held up as proof of God's providential control of history, and he is actually a, a, addressed here as the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, which is, of course, the Hebrew term from which we get Messiah. And this is shocking that a, that a, um, that a heathen pagan emperor would be called a Messiah, but he is a type of Christ. Um, he's a type of Christ who executes judgment on Israel's enemies and liberates his people from bondage. Um, there are several more allusions to Cyrus in this passage. In 45.4, the Lord says that he calls Cyrus by name, quote, even though you do not know me, unquote. In 45.13, the Lord uses Cyrus as an example. In 46.11, he alludes to Cyrus as a bird of prey. And 48.14 contains one final allusion to Cyrus. 48.14 is uh, assemble, um, assemble all of you and listen who among you, them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. And how does chapter 48 end? How does this section end? Well, verse 20, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So chapters 41 to 48 allude to Cyrus, name Cyrus, and then allude again and again to Cyrus. So about eight times in this section, he's, he's mentioned, and the section then concludes, because of Cyrus, those of you who are exiles in Babylon, get out of Babylon, go back to Jerusalem. So Cyrus is not incidental. He is central to the section, not because it's Cyrus alone who's performing this work, but it's the Lord who is using Cyrus to liberate his people politically and send them back to Jerusalem. Cyrus then is, the, is central to the whole idea of Yahweh as Lord of history. Okay, let's take a five-minute break here and then... I just have a, a, a little bit to say about predictive prophecy and the philosophy of history, and then we'll move on to the next lecture. Okay, so let's just take a five minute break.
Okay, I just want to say a word about predictive prophecy before we jump into to lecture eight. Um, modern liberal theology does not have a biblical understanding of revelation. For them, it is a name for human experience, as we see, for example, in the thought of Frederick Schleiermacher. It, revelation for them is simply uh, human experience of the divine. As such, it could never be information about the future. And so the notion of revelation that we see operative in Isaiah is that information about the future is indeed part of revelation. It seems to me that um, there's no way to interpret the Bible, uh, to take the Bible seriously without, uh, without saying that Revelation includes information about the future. I mean, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, I would not have you to be ignorant, brothers, and uh, tells them about the future second coming of Christ, it seems to me that believing in the second coming of Christ is a, an essential aspect of what it means to be a Christian. It's essential to our hope. So the idea that, that information about the future cannot be provided through, through predictive prophecy uh, is just a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. But as the, West, as the West slides back into the pagan mythological worldview from which it was dragged kicking and screaming by the Old Testament prophets, something of inestimable value is being lost. If we lose predictive prophecy, we lose eschatology, and that means we lose progress. Secular history inevitably dissolves into mythology. It hasn't <clears throat> finished happening yet, but what I'm, what I'm saying to you is that Western ideas that involve, that based on liberal theology that rejects the idea of predictive prophecy at the moment, people still believe in progress, or at least they still talk about progress. They still talk about the ideology of progress. But there is no basis for progress anymore. What is happening is that slowly, over a period of generations, you are going to see um, the Western worldview is going to degenerate back into a cyclical view of history as existed before the Old Testament revelation. You see, you can't have a view of progress unless you have a linear view of history. And in order to have a linear view of history, you need three elements. You need creation out of nothing, providence, and eschatology. If you lose predictive prophecy, you lose eschatology. It's no accident that liberal theology is undermining both eschatology and creation ex nihilo. Without a beginning and an end, the, the middle part, the providence becomes untenable because you can only have a concept of providence if there is a beginning and an end point and if history is moving from one to the other. If you can't define or say anything about the endpoint of history, 
then you would never know when progress is happening and when it's not. Do events that take place, you know, how do you know that certain events are progress? Um, Western, many Western intellectuals during the period of the first half of the 20th century believe that the USSR represented progress. They believe that the coming of communism was progress. But in order to make that claim, you have to have some concept of what the end point of history is supposed to look like. You must have some concept of, of where history is going in order to know whether we're getting closer to it or further away. The, the idea of progress just cannot stand on its own. It has to be based on um, the idea of, of history as linear, moving toward a certain defined objective. The rejection of Trinitarian classical theism that is happening today with the rise of relational theism is going to lead to the loss of the historical belief in progress. Ironically, scientific materialism, or what I usually call philosophical naturalism, leads us back to pagan mythology, in where, where history is cyclical, not linear. Uh, there, there, there is an ideological association of the idea of progress with the idea of scientific materialism in the popular mind today. Science means progress. Science is the way by which progress happens. The reason that people thought the Soviet Union was progress was because they believed it was the first scientific program. You know the phrase scientific socialism. They believed that the Soviet Union was the, was the reorganization of society on a scientific basis. And that was progress because science is identified with progress. However, the truth of the matter is that materialistic science cannot possibly lead to progress because, because materialism eliminates creation ex nihilo, it eliminates eschatology, and it eliminates providence. It, it leaves history going around in circles, and we never know when we're getting ahead and when we're not. And so when President Obama says we need to be on the right side of history, who knows what the right side is anymore? That's the problem with scientific uh, materialism. And, and it, it's, it's leading back to a secular, cyclical view of history where, where basically if, if progress happened, we, we wouldn't really know it because we don't really have uh, an endpoint in mind. In order for history to be linear, there must be a mind that transcends history and is consciously directing history toward its destiny in Jesus Christ. And that mind, of course, is the mind of God. God is providentially guiding history toward its destiny in Christ. That is the Christian worldview. That is our philosophy of history. That is what Isaiah believes. That's what the New Testament believes. But when you, when you lose the transcendent creator, who is the sovereign Lord of history, then you no longer have any mind directing history providentially toward a goal. 
So these are big issues. And they're big issues for our general culture as well as for the church. Uh, as Christians, uh, we, we need to understand that what is being lost when we lose Trinitarian classical theism is um, that which has made uh, culture Christian. We, we are losing the, 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 the concept of God that has been uh, uniquely derived from the Old Testament. And it has huge cultural ramifications and implications. Okay, that's, that's what I want to say about the philosophy of history. And now I want to talk about monotheism. So uh, we're running a little bit behind, but not too bad. It's 7.36 of my time, uh, which is um, uh, 11.26 your time. 12.26. Wait a second, what time is it? Um, 7, 7.37, uh, 8 o'clock is supposed to be, right. Well, lunch is supposed to be at one o'clock, right? So uh, so your time right there now is 12.37. So we have 23 minutes to lunch. Okay, so I have lecture eight and nine. Okay. We'll, we'll see what we can do with lecture eight in the next 23 minutes. Um, uh -huh. We may finish, we may not. Um, okay, monotheism. What is monotheism and what is it not? Um, monotheism is one of those words where everybody thinks we know exactly what it means until we try to answer some questions about it. Does monotheism mean that only one God exists? Or does it mean that there are many gods, but one high God? If the, if the gods of the nations do not exist, why does the Bible speak about them as if they did exist? Is that just a mythological hangover that we can demythologize? Or is the Bible somehow saying that these gods are real, but they're not? really God, which sounds paradoxical. Um, so these are the questions we have to consider. The key term is the term Elohim. In Psalm 82, let's go to Psalm 82 for a moment, a very controversial passage, which is uh, the interpretation of which is highly debated. But if we read Psalm 82 verse one in Hebrew, what we read is this, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. Okay, what on earth does that mean? The same Hebrew word is used for God in both cases, line one and line two. You notice that in the ESV translation, if you have that translation, God in line one is capitalized, and it is singular. God's in line two is not capitalized, and it is plural. But in the underlying Hebrew, it's the exact same word, Elohim, which is the plural of El. 
So how do we understand these gods in line two? Everybody agrees that God in line one is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. But who are the gods in line two? So the two theories are that they are heavenly beings, part of the divine council. There are other spiritual entities that really exist, but are subordinate to Yahweh as his creatures. Or that they are the elders of Israel, human beings. If you go on in the psalm, uh, God addresses these beings uh, in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So who is he talking to? Is he talking to the fallen spiritual entities that are known as the gods of the nations? Or is he talking to the rulers of Israel? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So obviously, whoever God is addressing are people or beings of power who are responsible for ruling over weak and helpless people. And God is blaming them for not, not, not taking care of those people and not uh, being, being kind to them. Verse 6, I said, you are Elohim, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So if these are human beings that God is addressing, why would he say, like men, you shall die? That sounds to me like he's addressing beings who don't normally die, but they're going to die because of Yahweh's judgment on them. They're going to die like men, as if they were mortal. If he's addressing the rulers of Israel, they already know they're going to die. Nobody doubts that, you know, none of the kings of Israel would have doubted that one day he would die. Um, So, so, the, so the debate does rage on. Who, who is God speaking to here? Excuse me. Can I have a question, please, here? Um, I, I follow, and I, I actually agree with that. Um, just thinking of a possible other explanation of why they are spoken to like that. In verse 7, you will die like mere mortals, the NIV says. So could it be said, perhaps, that what is argued, although you are these lofty, you know, people in power, your fate will be just like all other human beings' fate. In other words, just being elevated um, doesn't mean a special treatment. They will die like everyday, everyday human beings. Could that be a possible? I'm sure I've heard that somewhere as an explanation. Not that I agree with it, but I was just wondering what you thought. Right. Well, that's the line of explanation that one must take if one is going to interpret these as, as humans. Um, but I think that, I, I think that, uh, how do I put this? this? This passage reminds me a lot of Genesis chapter 6, 1 to 4, and the, um, the Nephilim. And it's, um, th there are, there are, re, you know, there are 
the, the, the human interpretation is just barely plausible. But in a case like this, where we have a passage where we have these two interpretations and we're, we're not sure which one is right, then I think canonical context enters into the final decision. And, and we have to, we, we, we should really uh, consider uh, if we'd use the human interpretation, it's obvious then that we're, we're saying that the, we don't really believe in the divine council idea and the gods of the nations idea where we're trying to avoid that. The question is, can we avoid that in all passages of scripture? Or are we going to encounter other passages where we're forced into the divine council interpretation? We're forced into a, an interpretation that there are Elohim, which are uh, spiritual entities that are fallen God, fallen angels, rulers of nations that Yahweh addresses. So I, I think that personally, you know, without having time to spend hours on the exegesis of Psalm 82, I would say that there are other passages that that do clarify that that these fallen spiritual entities do exist. Um, you know, even in the New Testament, even you know, I would appeal to a passage like Ephesians 6, for example. Um, and I would say that, that since we know that such entities do exist, and since we know that they are under the authority of, God, of Yahweh, and since they are, um, the, the one, rebellious ones are judged by Yahweh, uh, therefore, I think it's more, more likely that that's what's in view here in this passage. Yes, question. But the one verse that came into my mind uh, is, uh, I don't remember exactly the quotation, but Jesus in the gospel uh, quote a psalm that uh, speak about men that uh, are uh, referring to like gods uh, with a um, small g, of course, uh, when uh, Jesus debated with uh, the Pharisees uh, uh, speaking about the uh, that men receive the word of God and, and uh, are uh, considered like gods. So the exegesis of Jesus seems to uh, to take the human uh, interpretation. Uh, I don't know if it is applicable in this case of Psalm 82. Yeah, I think uh, I would need to be, I would need to see more specifically what you're referring to maybe by tomorrow you can look that up and 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 be specific and where does jesus say that what exactly does he say and what is he what is he likely talking about um we could we could sorry john 10 34 where jesus quotes that that very verse in psalm, psalm 82 uh, that was going to be my question as well yeah i'm not hearing you it's John 10, 34, um, and that was exactly the question I was going to ask as well, because Jesus seems to take that view uh, that it's men that's being talked about there rather than, rather than spiritual entities. Um, John, John 10, 34, Psalm 82. Thank you, Paul, exactly. Um, can you tell me the verse, John 10? 34 and 35. Um, uh, 
Yes, that is how the U.S. feature interprets it as well, that he's referring to Psalm 82.6, and human judges can in, sense, can in some sense be called gods. Well, there is an ambiguity here, and I fully grant the point that the, um, the Old Testament uh, speaks about uh, the, the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, are sometimes the Davidic kings, and sometimes they are these uh, fallen spiritual entities. The, um, it, there's a lot of ambiguity surrounding the, the term. Um, it, it, th there's, there's a comparison going on so that the kings can be like these rulers at times, and the rulers can be like, can exert a ruling function like kings. So I, I think you're, um, I think you are uh, correct in, in, in pointing out that there is an ambiguity there. And the question is, um, can we reduce every Old Testament reference to the Bene Elohim to human beings? That would be my, my point is not, my point is not so much the exegesis of Psalm 82 in and of itself. My point is, what does that, what range, what semantic range of meaning does Elohim have in the Old Testament? And it seems to have a, a wider range than simply the human or simply the supernatural. Um, it, it seems to overlap them in, in ways that are uh, not always predictable. Okay, so that, that's really the only main point that I'm making here. Uh, I doubt that, that the proper, you know, even if you were to take John 10, 34 as a definitive statement by Jesus that the that the reference in Psalm 82 is to human judges. I don't think that alone would um, eliminate the, the view of the Old Testament that there are, and the New Testament, that there are uh, Elohim or spiritual entities of some kind that do exist. Uh, uh, in other words, I don't think you could interpret Psalm 10 as implying that, that the doctrine of angels is, is wrong, that there are no angels, fallen or unfallen. Uh, operating in the world, um, but it would be a specific point about Psalm 10, or Psalm 82, rather. So, yeah, that would be my answer to that. I, I'm using Psalm 82 as an example, but even if that example doesn't hold, I think the point, the general point still would hold, that there are spiritual entities that do exist in the world, and some of them are rebelled against God, and instead of performing the providential role that God intended for them to carry out, uh, uh, ruling on his behalf certain aspects of creation, instead of them doing that, they are in rebellion and therefore they're under judgment. And they, in fact, are behind some of the idolatry or maybe all of the idolatry, not sure, of the pagan nations that, um, that are opposed to Israel. And these, these spiritual entities... Um, I guess, I guess the real point that I'm trying to make is that even if these spiritual entities are real, it does not overthrow monotheism as the Bible understands monotheism. That's really the point that I'm trying to make. I'm trying to say that if you became convinced that there were actual spiritual entities that could be called small g gods who were operating in history in trying to thwart Yahweh's will, if you became convinced that such existed, that in itself would not refute 
what the Bible means by monotheism. Because Isaiah's point is not that such beings could not or do not exist, but Isaiah's point is that such beings are not God in the sense that Yahweh is God, because they are creatures, not, not creators. And so their, their power has a, a defined limit. And their, their existence had a beginning. And so they're not like Yahweh. And, and so the, the, the point that, that Isaiah wants to make is the lordship of Yahweh over these entities. And um, in, in the modern West, in a materialistic culture, we're tend to, we tend to think that the way to assert Yahweh's uniqueness is to say that only Yahweh exists. But the point of Isaiah is not to say that only Yahweh exists. The point of Isaiah is to say only Yahweh is the transcendent creator. So if we look at um, uh, some definitions here, what is, I'm, I'm going to define monotheism by saying that there is such a thing as transcendent monotheism. And this is what I mean by the biblical de definition. So this is the view that God is the transcendent creator of all things. We see this in the Bible, beginning with the Old Testament, continuing in the New. It is also the view of the, of the Nicene Fathers and the Trinitarian classical theism of the great tradition. This, this view is compatible with the existence of many levels and kinds of spiritual beings in addition to the Lord. What they all have in common is that they were created by the transcendent creator God, who is Yahweh, the God of Israel. So that's how I understand biblical monotheism. There are many other kinds of monotheism. And there are many other, uh, you know, there, there are many other definitions that are relevant here. You can have pantheistic monotheism without polytheism or pantheistic monotheism with polytheism. You can have just straight polytheism. Uh, you can have theistic personalism, uh, which is the view that God is a person like us, but different in degree. Many of the attributes of classical theism may be assigned to this type of God, but usually not simplicity, immutability, or impassibility. This view is like polytheism, except that instead of a pantheon of gods, only one God is worshipped, and only this one God is thought to exist. And this view is very common today, um, but it excludes the idea of God as transcendent creator. If it talks about God as creator at all, it will talk about God as creator, but not really transcendent. Um, yeah. So in, in Isaiah 41, you have a passage that talks about the futility of the idols. Now, we have to really, we have to be clear, uh, try to be as clear as possible about the relationship of the idols to the spiritual uh, entities behind the idols. Um, the polemic against idolatry is complicated. I don't think it was complicated to Isaiah or his original readers, but I do think it is complicated to us because we live in a culture dominated by scientific materialism. So we live in a culture in which um, idolatry is seen as stupid because it's worshiping 
inanimate objects. The polemic of Isaiah against idolatry also agrees that idolatry is stupid, but not because the idolater is worshiping an inanimate object, but because the idolater is worshiping a spiritual entity that can be represented by an inanimate object. The, the idolatry in the ancient Near East was not, uh, people who practiced it were, did not think of themselves as worshiping a piece of metal. They thought of the piece of metal as an image of the God. And they thought of the God as spiritual. So there is an occult uh, ceremony widespread in the ancient Near East called the opening of the mouth uh, ritual in which the newly created idol is placed in the temple. And there's a, a magic ritual that is done that calls on the spirit of the God to inhabit the idol. And it's called the opening of the mouth. It's the, in the sense of the mouth being uh, exhaling breath. And the idea is that the spiritual entity becomes the soul of the physical object. Well, it, people who think that way obviously are not um, thinking that when they perform their, their worship rituals that they are worshiping a piece of gold. They, they think they're worshiping a spiritual entity that inhabits that piece of gold, right? So that's how people in the ancient Near East would have thought about idolatry. And we need to understand that that's what Isaiah has in mind when he is issuing his polemic against idolatry. So we shouldn't read our scientific materialism into Isaiah's polemic as if Isaiah was a modern scientific materialist. Isaiah is not mocking the idolater because the idolater is dumb enough to, to worship a piece of wood or metal. He's, he's mocking the idolater because the entity that is, that is imaged by that, by that piece of wood or metal is itself a mere creature of Yahweh. That is why Isaiah thinks it's stupid. So Isaiah thinks it's stupid. We think it's stupid, but for different reasons. Okay. Um, so if we look at Isaiah 41, uh, you have a, a major section here on the futility of idolatry. Um, verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. So the challenge that Isaiah is posing here to the gods of the pagan nations is, well, if you're really gods, you should be able to tell us the future. Thing is, they can't. Because these spiritual entities, these powers, thrones, dominions, whatever you call them, these fallen angels, the, they don't know the future. They can't predict, they could make the occasional shrewd guess about soon to come events, maybe, but they don't really know the future. Only Yahweh knows the future. And so when, when Isaiah is mocking the idolaters, 
it's really important to remember that the difference that what he what he what he's doing is he's contrasting these created spiritual entities with the with Yahweh the creator and and the difference is that Yahweh has all power they have limited power Yahweh knows the future they don't know the future and this is the basis for the difference between them um Isaiah 43, 10 to 13. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor there shall be any after me. Well, what, what is he talking about? The, you notice that this, the refrain that comes over and over through these chapters um, there is none beside me. Verse 11, I, I am the Lord and beside me, there is no savior. Why is there no savior besides the Lord? Because he alone has the power to save. He alone is in control of history. These other spiritual entities that um, can be called the gods of the nations, they are part of the creation. They are part of history. They are both actors and acted upon. They are like human beings in the sense that we make choices and decisions and we, we do things that affect history, but we are also affected by the events of history and by the events of other beings. Yahweh, however, is in a different class altogether. Yahweh simply acts. He is never acted upon. Yahweh acts. He does not get, he changes things, but he doesn't get changed. Instead of there being a two-way relationship between the actor and the other actors in the play, the, the playwright is above the whole thing. So Yahweh is like Shakespeare writing the, like, write, writing the play, and, and the gods of the nations are like Hamlet and Horatio, actors in the play, interacting with each other and affecting each other and having an influence on each other. But the actors in the play do not affect Shakespeare. Hamlet doesn't cause Shakespeare to do something or prevent Shakespeare from doing something. Hamlet doesn't change Shakespeare. Hamlet has a sphere of activity that is limited to the, the, the plane that exists within the play. He, he, he operates within that, that sphere, but he doesn't operate in the sphere that Yahweh inhabits, or that Shakespeare inhabits. Yahweh is like the playwright, and the gods of the nations and the people of Israel, human beings, every creature is part of the play. They interact with each other, but they don't. Yahweh, there's a one-way influence. Yahweh acts on them, but they don't act on him. Yes, question. Would you agree that sometimes uh, in the Old Testament, there is an actual mockery of of uh, uh, their their use of idols, uh, not 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 in the sense that they represent spiritual entities that are inferior to God, but in the just the sheer fact that they are um, uh, inanimate objects. For example, I was looking at Psalm one fifteen. Okay, we're going we're going to mention a couple of the examples of those sorts of passages, like Isaiah forty four. Um, in a minute. Um, and I would say that that the temptation from our perspective 
as modern people of influenced by a materialistic culture, we we are tempted to think that Isaiah's mockery of the of the idols is a mockery of the idol itself. But he's really mocking this the the spiritual entities that are worshipped behind those idols. Um, there's a close connection in Isaiah's mind between worshiping a, an idol and worshiping the spiritual entity because both are creatures. Both are within the realm of creatureliness. You notice, by the way, that in the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is, you shall make no graven image. And so there's a, there's a close connection in the biblical mind between the use of idols in worship and the worship of other gods than Yahweh. Only Yahweh is never worshipped through the use of idols. And that's because Yahweh is completely different from these other, other beings. Um, the, the, what, what I, what, when Isaiah, well, let's just talk about it. In Isaiah 44, 9 to 20. There's the, there Isaiah talks about the, the he says, all, the, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight do not profit. And so he says, um, you know, he, he, takes, he, he talks about the man who goes into the forest and cuts down a tree. And he takes part of the wood from the tree, and he shapes it into an idol and bows down to it. And then he takes another part of the tree and makes firewood and cooks his dinner over the fire. And uh, verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire, over half he eats meat and roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. You see, when he mocks him for making the other half into a god, his idol, and worshiping it, what Isaiah is saying is that he's breaking the second commandment. He's worshiping a graven image. And to do that means that he's worshiping a creature. He's not just worshiping the piece, even if he's not just worshiping the piece of wood. And I don't think Isaiah would assume that pagans would be self-consciously worshiping a piece of wood. The pagans are, are using the wood as the image of the God they're worshiping. But Isaiah is basically conflating the two, and he says it doesn't matter. To worship the entity behind the piece of wood is as bad as worshiping the piece of wood because the wood and the entity are both creatures. That's, that's, the, that's the essence of his, of his polemic. He said both of them are, you may be worshiping something that is invisible, a spirit. Fine. But that's as bad as worshiping a tree. Because both of them are mere creatures. They cannot save you. They are not sovereign. They don't create. They are just part of the world. They're part of the creation. And so when you worship them, it is, it is foolish because you're worshiping that which cannot save. He's basically saying these demons, what, what Paul will call the demons behind the, the, uh, the idolatry, in, in 1 Corinthians, he's saying those demons are no more able to save you than a piece of wood is able to save you. 
And so it's just as dumb to worship them as it is to worship a piece of wood. And so you might as well conflate the wood and the, and the demon and say, well, to worship one is like worshiping the other. And, and this is why he keeps mocking them for, for, um, for worshiping the metal or the wood. I mean, he know, Isaiah knows that they don't intend to worship merely the wood or the metal. They worship the, the being behind it that is imaged by the wood or the metal. Isaiah knows that, but he doesn't care. He's basically saying, oh, you make a big deal out of this distinction. Oh, you're just, you say you're not worshiping the piece of metal. You're worshiping the God behind the metal. And Isaiah says, it's all the same thing. That's a pretty radical critique of idolatry. Um, it's, it's a different critique than the scientific materialist critique, which says that the you know, there's nothing behind the piece of metal or the piece of wood. There's nothing that really exists, that those things don't exist. Those spirits are not real. There's no such thing as demons. That's a different critique. But what I'm saying is that Isaiah's critique is just as powerful and just as thorough as the modern critique. It's just different because the Bible doesn't, the Bible's not materialistic. So, yeah, so we're, we're at eight o'clock now, um, and I think this is time for um, eight o'clock is one o'clock, which means it's lunchtime. So we should, be, um, we should be breaking now for lunch. So I think we'll come back to the, um, um, I have just a couple of more points to make in this, in this uh, polemic against idolatry business, and then we'll move into the last lecture of the day after lunch. So, uh, and then we'll, uh, we're on track to still have some time for questions. And I sense that there are questions that you have. So just save them up, make a note, and we'll, we'll have a time for Q&A before we end. Okay, so have a good lunch. We'll see you after lunch. Thank you. Um, okay, I want to say a word about the, uh, the Psalm 82, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole that that, that becomes too long, but there's, I have many thoughts. Um, so if we go back to John 10, what's going on in John 10? Well, in John 8 and 10, Jesus almost gets stoned to death for blasphemy. In both cases, he, in John 8, he says, I am clearly claiming the the, uh, the name of God for himself. In John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And at that point, third, verse 31 says the Jews pick up stones to, to stone him. Now, Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus, now what, what follows in verse 34 and following is Jesus' rebuttal of their, of their logic. They're saying that he should be stoned for blasphemy because he is a mere man making himself out to be God. Jesus is referring to Psalm 82, I grant, and he is using the Psalm 82 to show that they're wrong to do what they're about to do. Now, if all that Psalm 82 means 
is that the human rulers of Israel were judged for doing a poor job. How does that really justify Jesus' claim to be one with the Father? Like Jesus' point is not to say, well, I'm just a mere man. So his citing of Psalm 82 must be, must be a way of saying something other than, well, I'm just a mere man, because that's what his enemies are saying about him. You're just a mere man. You're making yourself out to be God, so you're blaspheming. So we, the, the punishment for blasphemy, blasphemy is, is stoning. Jesus is saying, you shouldn't stone me because I'm not blaspheming. But his point can't be, I'm not blaspheming because I'm merely a man. The truth is he's making himself out to be God. He is claiming to be one with the Father. Okay, so what is what is going on here? Psalm 82 is um, a psalm that is set against the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern culture. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, there is a very close connection between the gods and the kings. There is a an, something called the descent of kingship from, from the gods. The ancient Near Eastern mythology says that one time the gods directly ruled over human beings and then they appointed kings to do the ruling while they withdrew and so that's the descent of kingship kingship is justified on the basis that the kings are very closely identified with the gods in ancient near eastern thinking now it's really interesting to me that um the israelite monarchy originates when the people ask for a king like all the other nations. Yahweh is ruling Israel directly, but they're not satisfied with that. The concept of the king like all the other nations uh, suggests that the king in Israel will be Yahweh's representative, the way that the kings of the nations are the representatives of the gods. And Sure enough, uh, one of the things that you find in New Testament theology is uh, when, when the time comes to discuss the title Son of God, people make the point that to be a Son of God in the Old Testament has various levels of meaning. Uh, it can be the angels can be called sons of God, the Hebrew kings can be called sons of God. To be a Son of God is not necessarily to be one with God. Yahweh himself to be identical on an ontological level with God, but it is to be his close, closely allied to him and representative of him. Okay. But there's ambiguity in the Israelite conception of the king as the son. So if we go back to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, verse 14 says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Um, and, uh, and as I took it from Saul, when I put him away from you and your house and kingdom shall be made sure before me, your throne shall be established forever. I think that in Psalm 82, we are, we have a, the, the reason that the, that the um, leaders of Israel are judged is because 
they are meant to be doing the works of God. They're meant to be implementing the will of Yahweh, just as the gods of the nations, the kings are supposed to be doing the work of the of the gods. The kings of Israel are supposed to be doing the work of Yahweh. When they don't, they get judged. Now, Jesus says, I'm doing the works of my father. The leaders of Israel of his day are under judgment, just like the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament were under judgment because they failed to do the works of, of, of Yahweh. Jesus, by contrast, does the works of Yahweh. Um, Jesus said, answered them, it is written in your law, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, that is the Son, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. He deserves to be called the Son of God because he is doing the works of the Father. There is an ontological connection between Jesus and the Father, between the Son and the Father, such that the work of the Father is done through the Son. The work of the Son is the work of the Father. That is the thought that is, that is Jesus' defense here. So just as in the ancient Near East, the kings are supposed to do the work of the gods, the Hebrew king is supposed to be the representative of Yahweh on earth doing his work, implementing the law and the covenant. And when they fail to do that, they are judged because there's supposed to be this close connection. Jesus comes and he is the true king, the true Messiah, because he does the works of the Father. He does them perfectly. And thus, it appears that he has this ontological connection to Yahweh that means that he is one with Yahweh. So the, the thought world against which the... Um, uh, the whole thing is being discussed is the ancient Near Eastern concept of the close connection between God, the gods and the kings. And this works itself out in Israel in such a way that, that the human kings of Israel in the line of David fail to do what they're supposed to do. They fail to do the works of Yahweh. They allow idolatry and so on, commit idolatry. So they end up being chastised and disciplined, but eventually one emerges from the line of David who sits on the throne of David forever, who does the work of Yahweh perfectly. And that's who Jesus thinks he is. He is the one who does that. So what, I, what I'm suggesting to you is that, is that it's more complicated than just an either or are the rulers in view here in Psalm 82, human or, or, or angelic. In a sense, it's both. But the, the thought the, 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 the background uh, uh, worldview against which Psalm 82 is written is very different from modern materialism. By the way, I would also suggest that in the light of Isaiah, that the judgment that falls on the pagan nations falls on both the kings as representatives of the gods of the pagan nations and on the gods of the pagan nations as well. And, and so one of the reasons why, uh, one of the implications, rather, of the polemic against idolatry in Isaiah is that the polemic is not only against the people who worship the idols, 
it's also against the beings being worshipped through the idols. So it's actually the gods who are under judgment as well as the empires themselves. So the gods are under judgment, the kings are under judgment, the people are under judgment, they're all under judgment, and they're all seen as, in a sense, a unity. Um, this idea of the unity of the gods and the kings um, is very fascinating to me because there's a parallel between the ancient Near Eastern idea and the idea of the Messiah as Yahweh come in the flesh. There's almost a circle that is completed where first Yahweh rules Israel, then they establish the kingship and he rules Israel through the kings. Then he comes and rules Israel directly again. And so the, the concept of the relationship between the king and the, and the God, both in paganism and in Israel, is, uh, is significant. And I, I think that if we lose this con if we lose the background of, of the ancient Near Eastern cultural understanding of the kingship and relationship of the kingship to the gods, we are likely to miss uh, or at least have our have diminished our concept of the uh, of the relationship between Yahweh and the messianic king. Well, that's that's more than than uh, than enough on on Psalm 82. Um, the the purpose of appealing to Psalm 82 is not so much to to simply say uh, that that the view of the, that those in view in Psalm 82 one are only the the spiritual entities, the gods of the nations, but that that Israel's kings are being judged in the context of a worldview that that does not deny that that's the way it is there's a comparison between the the rulers of israel not doing the will of yahweh and the rule and the kings of the pagan nations being supposed to be doing the will of the gods that that that's the background against that which that is uh that is um to be read and it all is a, it's it all has to do with the relationship of the empires themselves to to the gods. Um, Sorry, can I ask you just a quick? So just to just to finish off Isaiah's polemic against idolatry. In chapter forty-five, we see once again the point is emphasized that Yahweh is the Lord, and beside Him there is no other, which is why all peoples should turn to Him for salvation. Um, this polemic against the idols is really a polemic against the gods of the nations. And so what, what, is, what is happening here is that the, the foundation is being laid for the New Testament Great Commission for the taking of the gospel to the nations. Because what the, what the apostles do in the Great Commission is they go out to the nations and they say to the people of the nations, stop worshiping the God you've been worshiping and start worshiping the one true God. The proclamation of Jesus Christ to the nations is a call to the nations to believe in the God of the Old Testament, the God uh, who, who, of whom Jesus is the incarnation, and to, to start to worship him rather than worshiping their gods. That, the, the foundation of that is laid by Isaiah's polemic against the, the gods of the nations. 
So in, in chapter 45, or chapter 46, rather, we have a brutal attack on the Babylonian gods. Um, Bel and Nebo, who are deemed utterly impotent to save. Uh, he, he, there's a ceremony in which the, the Babylonians would carry their gods from the temple around the city and back into the temple. And Isaiah mocks that, and he says the Babylonians have to carry their gods, but Yahweh carries his people. Again, the emphasis is on how Yahweh acts in history. Um, so Isaiah 40 to 48, to, to sum things up, is a call to believe in the God who is the transcendent creator and sovereign Lord of history, who alone can save and therefore who alone should be worshipped. Um, is, Isaiah is fighting against the mythological conception of God and proclaiming the superiority of Israel's God to the gods of the pagan empires who do not deserve worship. One of the reasons why I think it is so important to understand Isaiah's polemic as being not just against idols in the sense of uh, graven images that break the second commandment, not just physical inanimate objects, but to understand Isaiah's polemic as being against the, the gods who are imaged by those idols. One of the reasons I think it's so important for us to grasp this is because the Bible is well aware of this distinction between the transcendent creator and the spiritual entities that are part of the creation. And it is insistent that the God we worship is not one of these spiritual entities, it's not a throne or a dominion or a power, not an angel, but is something utterly different from all of those. Now, if we, if, if my thesis is correct, that modern liberal Christianity is degenerating into mythology, and if my thesis is correct that, that the, the point of higher criticism and doctrinal revision, the liberal project over the 19th and 20th centuries, if the point is to, uh, to lose this concept of the transcendent creator and sovereign Lord of history who alone is to be worshiped and to revert to ancient Near Eastern pagan mythology, then what we should expect is that the doctrine of God throughout the 20th century would be revised in such a way as to make the God who is uh, being studied in Christian theology more and more like the mythological gods of the, of the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman world, and less and less like the transcendent creator. And I believe that's exactly what's going on. I believe that what's happening in something like theistic personalism is that God is being brought down from his transcendent place above the creation and brought into the creation. Instead of being the creator and the providential Lord and sovereign over all of history, he becomes an actor within the history, acting on others and being acted upon. And when that begins to happen, that's what I call relational theism. When that begins to happen, what we, what we are seeing is 
we are revising the Old Testament doctrine of God in such a way as to lose what Isaiah is proclaiming. And we are gaining, or we are substituting for it, the very concept of the gods of the nations against whom, against which he is preaching. What I'm saying is that the horrible history of Israel is repeating itself in the modern church. Just as Israel traded the concept of the sovereign creator for a mess of pottage, a mess of idolatry, so the modern Christian church is doing the same thing. The modern Christian church is giving up on the transcendent creator and sovereign Lord of history and is instead creating an idol, an idol God who is limited and a being among beings and who is not really the transcendent creator, but simply an actor within the scope, within the cosmos. And we are, we are, we end up worshiping an idol instead of the true God. We may not be breaking the second commandment of creating graven images, but we are breaking the first commandment by, by, by changing from the worship of the one true God of Israel to a God who is more like the gods of mythology than the God of Israel. This is pretty serious stuff. I mean, we're, what I'm saying is that, that the God who is worshipped in relational theism is not really the God of the Bible. That means the God who is worshipped, who is described in many of the leading systematic theologies of the 20th century, is not the God of the Bible. And the God who is worshipped in many liberal Protestant churches is not the God of the Bible. So this is not a little thing. This is a big thing. Um, we, we sometimes, I sometimes get the impression that people think that we can just sort of agree to disagree about the doctrine of God. We all have different views of God. We have different models of God. And, you know, it doesn't really matter because ultimately we all worship the same God. We just conceive of him differently. But that's not the way Isaiah approaches the matter. Isaiah seems to be say his whole argument hinges on the on the distinction between Yahweh and the gods of the nations that they are not the same thing that even though we use the same term Elohim to describe both of them we also use the word Yahweh to describe what is unique about the God of Israel and we are we are we are saying that that um, the other gods are essentially imitators. They are posers. They are trying to pretend that they are the true God when they're not. And so, um, you know, well, let me put it this way. What do you suppose? So, I mean, if it's true that if, if you believe in fallen angels, if you believe in, in demonic forces, if you think that Paul was talking about literally existing real things in, in Ephesians 6, um, where, what are, where are those entities today and what are they doing? Have they ceased to exist? 
Have they gone silent? Have they been destroyed? No, I think they're still around. And I think that they are still out to do the very same thing they've done all through the Old Testament, deceive the nations into worshiping them instead of the true God. And they will deceive God's people if God's people allow them to do so. And that's why we are warned in the New Testament not to uh, be deceived. And that's why John, John's last words in, John, in 1 John are, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because idolatry is a persistent threat to the people of God in every age. And I believe that idolatry is on the rise in Western civilization today because we are losing our Christian roots and we are losing our grasp on the, the distinctiveness of the Christian concept of God. So these, these issues are not uh, small issues about which we can agree to disagree. They are life and death issues that, on which the survival of the witness of the gospel depends. We must continue to um, hold to the doctrine of God that is taught in Scripture, and I believe that doctrine of God is best described as Trinitarian classical theism. Okay, that's chapter, that's lecture eight. Now, we have about an hour and a half left uh, today, and I want to uh, look at chapter, at lecture nine, uh, the new lecture nine, which is the church fathers and the God of the, God of the philosophers. And I want to, um, I want to uh, uh, go through this lecture, and then tomorrow, I'll just, um, uh, tomorrow will be, um, if I have to finish this tomorrow, I will, but, but the only thing I have planned now for tomorrow is to uh, basically sum things up with a, um, a lecture on do we worship the God of the Bible, and then I will, I will leave some time for Q&A at the end. So is the, is the Nicene Doctrine of God biblical? In chapter, um, uh, chapter 8, 7 of the book, um, yeah, I start with this quotation from David Yego. And David Yego writes, no theory of the development of doctrine, which attempts to save the classical doctrines without accounting for the unanimous conviction of the Christian tradition that they are the teaching of scripture, can overcome the marginalization of the doctrines, which is so evident in the contemporary Western church and theology. So Yego is saying that the traditional classical doctrine of God is, has been marginalized in the, modern, in the modern West. So he's saying the same thing I'm saying. He's making the point there that the classical orthodox doctrine of God, which the church has confessed in the ecumenical creeds and the Reformation confessions, this is the true teaching of scripture. And he's saying that if we don't say, if we don't show and preach and hold and defend the idea that this is the true teaching of scripture, we will lose it. Because it's not enough to say as I realized about 10 years ago in writing my book, I realized it's not enough to say, well, the problem with relational theism is that it's incompatible with Nicaea. Because if you, that may be true. Well, that is true. However, if all you have to say is the classical doctrine of God is not compatible with the creed of Nicaea, people are going to say, well, 
but so what? Because um, the Creed of Nicaea is just reading Greek metaphysics into the Bible. It's not really the teaching of the Bible. The Bible teaches God as changeable and as in time with us. There are people saying this today. And so just proving that relational theism is, inco is incompatible with Nicaea is not enough. You have to prove that relational theism is not compatible with scripture. And the way to do that is, so, so the only way to do that is to prove that the doctrine of God in the Nicene Creed is the teaching of scripture. That is certainly what the Nicene fathers believe. The whole point about, the whole point of the, of, of putting the homoousios into the creed was the, the Nicene fathers who did that were not saying, well, we've got a new uh, doctrine of God that isn't found in scripture, but which we think is true and we're going to put it in the creed. No, what they're saying is, in order to teach what scripture teaches, we have to put this word in the creed. We have to say that God is, we have to put the word in that says that God and the son are one in being. We have to have the doctrine of the Trinity in order to teach what scripture teaches. The Arians obviously disagreed. Uh, many other people throughout church history, many heretics have disagreed, but that was their position. So let's be clear. What it means to confess Nicaea is to confess that Nicaea is the true teaching of Scripture. And the doctrine of God in the Creed of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed is not simply a doctrine that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a the doctrine of God that is that is in the Nicene Creed is what you could call Trinitarian monotheism. It is monotheism that is Trinitarian. And if you have a doctrine of the Trinity that loses its grip on monotheism, on Old Testament monotheism, then it's no longer the Nicene doctrine. The Nicene doctrine is saying that we continue to confess the Shema. We continue to confess the Old Testament teaching about God. And when we teach that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in being, we continue to, to, to teach the Old Testament doctrine of God. So therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity presupposes the teaching of Isaiah that God is the transcendent creator and sovereign Lord of history who alone is to be worshipped. Which means that when you worship Jesus, you're worshipping the triune God, the, the God of, of Israel. To worship the Son is to worship the Father and the Spirit, because they are one in being. That's what, that's what we have to, that's what's at stake in the Christian doctrine of God. If we don't believe that, then we, we're, not, we're not confessing the classical doctrine at all. So in chapter seven of my book, which is, I, I think, a, a very important chapter, the point is to show that the church fathers of the, four, of the first few centuries who developed Trinitarian classical theism were giving expression to the biblical doctrine of God, and that's why we can never give up Trinitarian classical theism. We can never have 
a doctrine of the Trinity that has been severed from classical theism without falling back into mythological thinking. That's, that's the point. So the fathers were determined to integrate what was salvageable from Greek philosophy into a Christian worldview built on the basis of biblical exegesis. Why? Because they wanted to assimilate all human culture into a biblical framework. They wanted to assimilate philosophy into a theological framework, which is what one would expect from people who believe that God is the transcendent creator. You see, the, the teaching of Isaiah, the polemic against the gods of the nations, is really saying that there's only one true God who should be worshipped, which is implicitly saying that all the nations should come and worship Yahweh. And that turns out to be the mission of the church, to preach the the, the gospel uh, to the nations and to call the nations to faith in, in Christ, that is calling them to faith in Yahweh. So the fathers, ex, uh, the fathers are, are basically trying to say this doctrine of God that we preach is for all people everywhere. It is for the entire human race. It's not just for um, uh, a certain ethnic group called the Jews and those who join them, but it is for the whole of the world. And so you might say, well, uh, why is it necessary to, to uh, do theology in the sense of, I mean, it's, it's clear why we should study God, but why all things in relation to God? The, the all things there refers to, literally to everything in the world. Um, everything is affected by theology. When I say everything, I mean economic life, scientific life, marriage and family, ethics, uh, art, beauty. Everything is affected because everything comes under the sovereignty of God. Everything has been created by God and is, in, is within God's sovereignty, and God is the Lord over all of it. Therefore, everything has to be understood in relation to God all of life. Um, that's, that's the calling of God's people, is to understand all of life and creation in relationship to God. Because God is the creator of all things, not just the tribal God of the Jews and Christians. So this is what led the fathers to appropriate the Greek philosophical concept of the Logos to describe creation through Christ. The astonished witness of the apostles is that the word took on flesh. Um, you see, it's not, uh, see, see, the point of overlap between Greek metaphysics and John 1 is that both the writer, both John and the, the Stoics, believe that the Logos is the principle of reason that gives order and structure to the universe. John says uh, that the Logos is the word of God. It's the, it's the, it's what, it's what in Genesis 1 causes the boundaries to appear, causes the order to, to appear, causes the structure of creation to appear. That's where the overlap occurs. But where the distinction occurs is that for the Greeks, Logos was an abstract principle. But for John, the Logos becomes flesh, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Logos 
becomes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So that means Jesus Christ is the word of God. Jesus Christ is the Logos. Jesus Christ is the principle of order and structure in the universe and, at, and is at the same time a person. Um, they don't have a theory to explain how that could be. It's not like the, the apostles came up with a theory about how the incarnation could have happened. And then they said, oh, and here's this, this is what happened. What they did was they said, look, we were there. We saw this man, Jesus. We saw the works that he did. We saw the, we heard the words that he spoke. And we believe that this was God incarnate. This was Yahweh come in the flesh. This was the, the word of God taken human flesh. We don't understand how that happens. Um, we didn't even we didn't even, even expect it to happen, but it happened. And so that which we have seen with our eyes and heard with our ears and handled with our hands, John says at the beginning of First John, that we that we declare to you. So the fact of the incarnation drives the apostolic testimony. And the apostolic testimony is not a theory about the relationship of God to the world. It is a proclamation of the fact that this has happened. The fathers then reflect on the implications of this for all of life. So as I said yesterday, uh, what the fathers were doing by appropriating elements of Greek philosophy and science and into their theology was they were studying all things in relation to God they were, it, it was the Christianization of Hellenism rather than the Hellenization of Christianity. It was the incorporation of Greek metaphysics into a Christian scheme. And I think we see that, that, that idea of incorporating the truth that is found in human culture into a unified biblical worldview. We see that all happening all the way through the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament, and it extends into the, the patristic period. That's what the fathers are up to. So let's look at the three themes that we've studied in Isaiah. Uh, transcendent creator, sovereign lord of history, and the one who alone is to be worshipped. Transcendence, uh, sovereignty, and monotheism. We're going to study those in in the fourth century uh, or in the, in the church fathers. So first we look at divine transcendence and the Arian controversy. Now this controversy was over the nature of the sun. Around 313, um, Arius apparently began to contradict his bishop in Alexandria of Egypt. And Arius began to say that the sun was not eternally generated by the father. He said that instead the son was the first and greatest creature of the father and he was divine in the sense that he was created by the father and is like the father, but not divine in the sense of being one in being with the father. Um, Constantine was in the process of uh, legalizing Christianity at the time and Constantine took an interest in the church and wanted the church to be uni unified, but this, this controversy, the Arian controversy, was threatening to tear the church apart. And so he called the Council of Nicaea in 325, and bishops from all over the empire came together, and they, they agreed to use the term homoousios to affirm the um, oneness in being of the Father and the Son. 
And so on page 213 of my book, I do quote the Nicene Creed. I just want to read it to you. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten as only begotten of the Father, that is of the being of the Father. Ectes usia tu patros, ectes usia tu patros. Um, of the being of the Father, out of the being of the Father. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, homoousion, with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, both things in heaven and on earth, who for us men in our salvation came down and was incarnate and became man, suffered and rose again the third day, ascended into the heavens and is coming to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. You can see that this is a, a revision of the Apostles' Creed. The three articles, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. But it is revising the Creed to insert extra words to clarify the relationship between the Father and the Son. And the key word is homoousia. So what the fathers of Nicaea were saying is that... Um, the son is on the God side of the creature creator distinction. It's important to remember that everybody believed in divine simplicity in the fourth century. Um, I like to say even the heretics believed in divine simplicity in the fourth century. Um, our modern heretics don't even believe in simplicity, but the, even, the, even the heretics believed in, everybody believed in simplicity in the fourth century. So the question was, how do we understand the Father eternally begetting the Son and the Father and Son breathing out the Spirit as part of the divine simplicity? That was the challenge. Arius said, it's not logical. If God begets the Son, that has to happen in time. It's motion. It has to happen in time. There's no such thing as an eternal begetting. So that was a real challenge to the concept of simplicity. I mean, Arius was saying, if you want to continue to hold to simplicity, and don't we all, then you have to say the Son is created in time as the first creation. The Nicene Fathers said, no, the begetting of the Son is the name of an eternal relation. There never was a time when Father was not Father. There never was a time when the Son was not Son. And the very... If the father himself was at one time not father and then became father at another time, then there would be change within the father. So the Nicene theologians in opposition to Arius said, no, you can't, you can't get around the, you can't save simplicity by making the generation of the son an event in time. Because you still would have a change from the father not being father to being father. So you, you, what you've got to understand is the generation of the son by the father as eternal. So this puts the son and the spirit on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. Arius wanted to talk about degrees of divinity. The father is God par excellence. The son is like God, close to God, almost like almost totally God, but, but less God. 
And then you, as you move down the great chain of being angels and humans less and less divine. That was a very Greek way of thinking. So the interesting thing is that Athanasius, well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Athanasius is going to accuse Arius of being too Neoplatonic. Fascinating. Let's look at that. Um, Athanasius argued for the commonality of essence in the Father and Son from the fact that the scripture speaks of Christ as the Son of the Father. So Athanasius is appealing to texts like John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Um, and he's saying that Christ as Son is the Son of the Father, and they both share the same being, same essence. And so to affirm their common essence is to follow the pattern of scripture. That's uh, Athanasius. I quote Athanasius on page 216 as writing the following. Athanasius says, For if the word is not with the Father from everlasting, the triad is not everlasting. But a monad was first, and afterward, by addition, it became a triad. And so as time went on, it seems we know God, uh, seems what we know, God, sorry, it seems what we know concerning God grew and took shape. The triad is discovered to be unlike itself, consisting of strange and alien natures and essences. And then here's the kicker. It belongs to the Greeks to introduce an originated triad and to level it with things originate. For those to admit of deficiencies and additions, but the faith of the Christians acknowledges the blessed triad as unalterable and perfect and ever what it was. So you see what Athanasius is doing here is he's accusing the Arians of being, of, of failing to reform Greek metaphysics in the right way. He's accusing Arians, Arius, of bringing the transcendent God down to the level of the cosmos to see it as being involved in a process of change where the Trinity is changes because God is originally not triune, but he's father, that he generates the son and then he becomes and the spirit and becomes triune. And Athanasius is saying that to do, to, to, to look at God that way is essentially to look at God in a Greek way. Now, Athanasius doesn't say it in this quote, but it's basically to mythologize God. It's to see God as being like the gods of mythology, part of the cosmos, changing and evolving with the cosmos. And Athanasius says, no, God is transcendent of the cosmos. He does not change. And therefore, if he's triune now, he always was triune. And if the father is father now, he always was the father. And if the son is son now, he always was the son. And so when scripture speaks of the father generating the son, that's an eternal relation of origin. It is not an event in time. Certainly the incarnation, uh, the assuming of human nature into union with the Logos is an event in time, but not the father-son relation itself. So let us hear no more about the imposition of Greek metaphysics on the Bible by the fathers. That's not what they were doing. They were doing the opposite. It was the heretics who were reading Greek metaphysics into the Bible. It was Arius who was reading Greek metaphysics into the Bible. It was, the, it was Athanasius and the pro-Nicenes who were following the pattern of biblical language and revising the Greek metaphysics to fit with that pattern 
by affirming the eternal relation of origin. So that's, that's transcendence. Now let's think about the completion of, of philosophy by prophecy. So the Old Testament identifies the problem, sin, guilt, human inability to atone for its own, self, in its own sin, the gulf between God and man. But the Old Testament never really provides the solution. It prophesies the solution. It, uh, there are types of the coming solution, but the solution doesn't happen in the Old Testament. Now, Greek philosophy was understood by the fathers to be, in a way, parallel to the Old Testament in that um, the, the philosophy identified the problem, but not the solution. Philosophy, gen, Greek philosophy was able to, to identify the fact that, yes, there is a God separate from the cosmos. But how do you get to that God? How do we come into fellowship and communion with that God? They have no answer. But Christianity is the fulfillment of both. Christianity is the fulfillment of the problem of sin through the atonement of Christ. Christ is the solution. He is the way to God. He deals with sin and he is the mediator between God and man. He is the one through whom we achieve union with God by coming into a relationship of faith with him. So Christianity in the mind of the fathers is the solution both to the dilemma of the Jews and the dilemma of the Gentiles. And this is the, the way, it, it, the, 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 the Great Commission is driving their thinking here because they, they are assuming that when they preach the message of Christ to the nations, that, that Christ is the solution to the, the problem that the, that the Gentiles have. And it, the problem is, is how can humans get to God? And all people have that problem, Jews and Gentiles alike, and Christ is the solution to it. We can see this in the, um, in the writings of Justin Martyr, second century apologist. Now, Justin was um, uh, born around 100 AD, and uh, he was born in, in Palestine, in, in Israel. He was a philosopher before his conversion, and he, he went around and tried out all the different schools of Greek philosophy, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Materialists, and finally the Platonists. His conversion is a textbook example of what we've just been saying. He found the Platonists to be the best of the Greek, uh, best school of philosophy. He found them to be um, the best because they believed in God, a a, a cause of the universe that is separate from the universe. They believed in that. But he, he, he tells in his, in his dialogue with Trifo and his apology, he says, you know, I, I kept waiting for them to tell me, yes, I believe you're right. There is a God, but how do I get to God? And he said, the, that's what they never could tell me. The Platonist, his Platonist teachers could never tell him how he could reach God. And then he tells about how one day he meets a mysterious old man on a beach. And he, uh, he, uh, he has a dialogue with this man. 
And this man begins to tell the, the uh, in their Socratic dialogue about philosophy and the soul, they come to an agreement that the philosophers do not know what the soul is. The Platonists say the soul is immortal, but since it participates in the changing world of flux, it cannot be eternal. God alone is unbegotten and incorruptible. So having identified this problem, the old man now begins to introduce Justin to Christianity. So here's what he says. There existed, the old man says to Justin, there existed long before this time certain men more ancient than all those who are esteemed philosophers, both righteous and beloved by God, who spoke by the divine spirit and listen, and foretold events which would take place and which are now taking place, they are called prophets. So the old man tells Justin about the Hebrew prophets. They alone both saw and announced the truth to men, neither reverencing nor fearing any man nor influenced by a desire for glory, but speaking those things alone which they saw and which they heard being filled with the Holy Spirit. Their writings are still extant. He's referring here to the Hebrew scriptures, the writings of the prophets. And he who has read them is very much helped in his knowledge of the beginning and end of things and of those matters, matters of which the philosopher ought to know, provided he has believed them. But they did not use demonstration in their treatises seeing that they were witnesses to truth above all demonstration and worthy of belief. And those events which have happened and which are happening compel you to assent to the utterances of them. Notice he, he's emphasizing that the prophets have prophesied something and what they prophesied has now come true. And that's why you should believe them. Sound familiar? And although indeed they were entitled to credit on account of the miracles which they performed. So in other words, he's saying the prophets are to be believed because the prophets did supernatural miracles. One of which I suppose you could say would be revealing the name of the pagan emperor who would allow the Jews to return to Israel 150 years in advance. And since they both glorified the creator, the God and father of all things, and proclaimed his son, the Christ sent by him, which indeed the false prophets who are filled with lying unclean spirit, neither have done nor do, but venture to work certain wonderful deeds for the astonishing, for the purpose of astonishing men and glorify the spirit of demons, the spirits and demons of error. He's saying that there are false prophets who speak on behalf of false gods, and they do even do miracles, but they don't tell the future. They don't foretell things that are going to come true. But pray that above all things, the gates of light may be open to you, for these things cannot be perceived or understood by all, but only by the man to whom God and his Christ have imparted wisdom. This event leads to Justin's conversion. He finds what he has been seeking not in Platonism, but in the Bible. Philosophy is completed by prophecy. The philosophic quest is not demeaned here. Uh, the philosophic quest is our genuine quest for God. And the Platonists made some progress in that quest, but they didn't bring it to completion. They were not able to, uh, to tell you how to get to God. 
but Christ is the way to God. And so Christianity offers a way to God. Notice that Justin specifically mentions prediction as part of prophecy. He says that the prophets foretold things which would take place. And if you go on to read his dialogue with Trifo, he expands on this at length. He, he talks about many Old Testament messianic prophecies, and he takes them seriously. In the course of his work, he quotes the entirety of Isaiah 53 as descriptive of the Messiah and shows how Christ fulfills the prophecy in detail. And so um, he agrees with the perspective that I've been attributing to Isaiah in this lectures in that he says that the myths common in Greek Greco-Roman culture were uttered by, quote, wicked demons to deceive and lead astray the human race, unquote. So if philosophy is a quest for wisdom, it is fulfilled only in Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Um, we can see how the Old Testament prophecies were of tremendous significance to the church fathers. And I don't have time to go into it, but in the chapter, I go into Athanasius's book on the incarnation. And uh, there I talk about um, how, how much importance Athanasius places on the fulfillment of prophecy by Christ and how that to him is proof that Christ is the Messiah. Um, so you can see that, that the same kind of uh, teaching that God is sovereign over history and this sovereignty is, is illustrated by his ability to foretell the future and to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy um, is a theme in Isaiah, but it's also a theme in the church fathers. Okay, finally, uh, monotheism and mystery. The third theme we looked at in Isaiah 40 to 48 was monotheism. Yahweh alone is to be worshiped because he is unique as the transcendent creator and sovereign Lord of, of history. The Arian crisis, raise the problem of how to articulate a doctrine of God that is clearly monotheistic without compromising the Trinity. That was the nature of the problem that they wrestled with for 50 years between 325 and 381. During that 50-year period, uh, a generation, well, two generations really after uh, um, Arius, came uh, a Neo-Arian thinker by the name of Eunomius. And um, Eunomius was refuted by the Cappadocian fathers, especially Basil of Caesarea, who wrote a book called Against Eunomius. And Eunomius believed that we can rationally define God as unbegotten, which means that Christ must not be fully God. Now, Eunomius was very concerned to maintain the distinction of God from the world, which is good. But the problem was that he proposed to do so by denying the eternal generation of the Son. He said that God must not will anything in eternity or else he is not immutable. And so he says the Son must be generated at the beginning of time uh, so that in eternity God can be immutable. 
Now, Eunomius made a strong claim to understand God, even to the point of saying that he could define God as unbegotten or ingenerate. Well, now, in Basil of Caesarea's refutation of Eunomius, he basically de denies that humans can define God or comprehend God. But he admits that we, but he, he doesn't admit, he, he asserts that we have true knowledge of God. You see, this is the dilemma that Basil is wrestling with. Eunomius has put him on the horns of a dilemma. Eunomius is saying, do we have true knowledge of God? Basil replies, yes. Eunomius says, well, if we have true knowledge of God, there's only one way to have true knowledge of God. We both know what that is. We must know the being of God. Now, why does Eunomius think that? Well, he thinks that because he's a Platonist. And Platonism says that the way we know something is by knowing its nature. So if you know the nature of a horse, you know how the horse, how that animal will behave. You know that if it's a horse, it's strong enough to carry a burden. If it's a rabbit, it's not strong enough to carry a burden. It's a, each, each thing has a nature and to know the nature of the thing is to really know the thing, to know its potential, its capability, its characteristics and so on. Okay, that's, that's the platonic idea of universals. That each individually existing thing in the world participates in the universal that belongs to that, that that thing participates in, and that's what makes the thing what it is. That uh, a, a horse is a horse because it participates in the universal of hoarseness and so on. Now, Eunomius is what we might call an unreconstructed Platonist on this point. He believes that universals exist separately from the world and individually existing things in the world participate in these universals and that we can know things by knowing the universal. So if we, if we know something by knowing its nature, then the only way to know God would be to know God's nature. That's Eunomius' defense. He says, you, you're accusing me of being a rationalist. I'm telling you that God is defined as unbegotten. But look, if we don't know the nature of God, if we can't define the nature of God, then we don't know God at all. And so this is the dilemma that he poses to Basil and to orthodoxy. So what Basil does is he corrects Eunomius's Platonism, not by denying it completely, but by saying that we do not know God in the same way that we know creatures. Basil develops a concept called epinoia in order to argue that we can have genuine knowledge of God on the basis of his acts in history, but we cannot have complete knowledge of his nature in that way. So as we reflect on the acts of God in history, uh, his deliverance of Israel from Exodus in, from Egypt, his, uh, the, the, the judgment of Israel in the exile, the sending of the Messiah, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as we reflect on what God has done in history, we know one thing, every cause is greater than its effect, so God is greater than the effects he, of his acts in history, 
And so we know that if God is capable of, for example, raising the dead, which we see him doing in history, then he has a power that is at least great enough to raise the dead. But how much greater, we don't know. For Basil, epinoia means concepts we devise in order to understand features of things we're studying, like a third thing in between our name for God and God himself. And he argues that using epinoia, we can have true knowledge of God's being without fully comprehending the essence of God. It's one thing to comprehend the essence of a creature. It's a different thing to, um, to comprehend the essence of the infinite God. So we don't know God the way we know creatures. We, the, our knowledge of a creature is, in principle, potentially comprehensive. We, we could know everything there is to know about the nature of a creature, because we have a finite mind and the creature is a finite thing. There's a possibility that we could do that if we were smart enough and, and wise enough, but not with God. We can't ever hope to know the nature of God comprehensively because a finite mind cannot contain the infinite. So what we can know is an epinoia about God's nature. We can have an idea of God's nature, which can be true as far as it goes without being comprehensive. He says that when you, uh, when you look at scripture, when scripture uses words like light or door to describe Christ, I am the light of the world, I am the door, something true is being conveyed by those analogies. And yet, we, 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 we don't imagine that Christ being the door or the light is a comprehensive statement of everything that he is. So the mystery of God is that we can know that God is greater than our concept of God. And yet our concept of God, as far as it goes, can be true. So Basil's refutation of Eunomius was to say, Eunomius, you, you are mistaken in thinking that you can have a knowledge of God's nature in the way that we could have the knowledge of the nature of a created thing. Because God is infinite and you cannot comprehend him. So we do have knowledge of God without having comprehensive, we have true knowledge without having comprehensive knowledge of God. The essence of God always eludes our definitions, which is why Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's always going to need to be an element of faith in our knowledge of God. Faith and knowledge are not opposites. They are complementary. They go together. We have knowledge of certain truths about God, and we have faith in God, which goes beyond our knowledge. We, we worship God because he is greater than our concept of him. Specifically, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we, we have um, a statement that God is one usia, or being, in three hypostases, or persons. Now, originally, in Greek philosophy, the word usia and hypostasis 
both referred to being. But in Trinitarian theology, we use hypostasis for what there are three of in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We use usia for what there is one of in, one in God, that is being. One being three persons. One usia, three hypostases. So if we were to say that God is one and three in exactly the same way and at exactly the same time, then that would be a contradiction. So for example, if we were to say God is one usia and three usias, that would be a contradiction. If we said God is one hypostasis and three hypostases, then that would be a contradiction. But that's not what Nicaea says. What Nicaea says is God is one usia and three hypostases. So because he is one in a slightly different way than he is three, it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. Ah, but I know what the next question you are going to have is going to be. The question is going to be, so what's the difference exactly between an usia and a hypostasis? Originally, you're going to say, originally you told me that they meant the same thing. They were synonyms. But in Trinitarian theology, they get to be differentiated. The Father, Son, and Spirit are hypostases. The being of God is an usia. So what's the difference between usia and hypostasis? And there is where we bump into mystery. The Nicene Confession says that it is meaningful to speak of the three persons and the one being without being able to rationally comprehend and explain in human language the difference between them. <clears throat> now you might say, you might be like Nunomius. You might say, well, that doesn't satisfy me. I want a rational explanation. I want to define God. I want to comprehend God. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe in him. If you take that line, you are basically going against what the writer to the Hebrews said. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. If there were no mystery, there would be no need for faith. The Nicene Creed, like the definition of Chalcedon, defines what we believe. It does not rationally explain how God can be three and one. It tells us what we are to believe. And then we have to accept that by faith or reject it. So this means that monotheism is a mystery. And it must remain a mystery if we are to remain biblical monotheists. Um, there's mystery in Isaiah. And there's mystery in the Nicene theology. And in that sense, both of them are teaching monotheism. But both of them are aware that our rational comprehension of God is, is limited by the limits of our own minds as creatures, as finite creatures. So that means there is much about the God of scripture that we cannot understand. But the task of theology is to ensure that we do not confess the doctrine of the Trinity in such a way as to make monotheism a contradiction of that doctrine. My, my complaint about 20th, much 20th century Trinitarian theology is that it teaches Trinitarian theology in such a way as to compromise monotheism. 
social Trinitarianism, for example, sees the three as center, three centers of consciousness th with three different wills. Father has a will, son has a will, spirit has a will. They, they, they all, they, they agree with each other and they work closely together, but they have three separate wills. But pro-Nicene theology says there is one will and one power in God, just as there is one nature. The problem with, not, with, with much of, of 20th century Trinitarian theology is that it's not really monotheistic. And there's no way that the Christian church can claim that its doctrine of God is in continuity with the Old Testament unless it's monotheistic. Question. We're, I'm just I'm about just finished. About I was going, going to say... We can have questions now. Anyways, we have about 35 minutes left and uh, 39 minutes left before 11 o'clock, before 2 o'clock, and uh, we'll, we'll go to questions now. So, Neil, you're first. Hi. Uh, good to see you again. It's been two years, but uh, really enjoying these lectures. Um, had a question, yeah, about like just what you what you just said. Um, the divine, the divine and human will then in Christ, if he has a divine and a human will, how does that work? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, well, that was, that the, was, the, that was, that was the, the, sorry, that was that the question that emerged. Uh, why, why am I getting an echo here? Um, yes, everybody should mute. So, yeah, so this was the question that obviously occurred after the Nicene definition. And in 381, when the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed was finalized and the word homoousios was reaffirmed, and the pro-Nicene theology proceeded to teach that God is three persons, but one will, one being, one will, one power. Obviously, if God is one being with three persons, how do we understand the human and divine natures of Christ? And are they, how, how, can, how can they, how can we avoid saying that there are four persons in God? And so the... Um, so the, the definition of Chalcedon was the, was the solution to that. It was the answer to that problem, that question. And it was like a, an addendum to the, to, the, to the Nicene Creed. And so what happens at Chalcedon is that the fathers say that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. The divine logos assumes into union with itself a human nature. The divine logos in so doing does not change. As remember, we want the, the triune God must be simple and immutable. But of course, a human nature is, is going to be, is, going, is not immutable, it changes. Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. Um, obviously, the human nature of Jesus changes. So the hypostatic union taught in Chalcedon says that the two natures are united in one person, but they don't mix with each other and become a third thing. They are, they are not confused with each other. The divine nature remains the divine nature all through the incarnation. The human nature remains the human nature all through the incarnation. So that means that although there are there is only one will in God, there are two wills in Christ, a divine and a human will. 
Jesus Christ is one person in two natures. So at, in his divine nature, he shares one will with the Father and Spirit. But insofar as he's human, he has a separate human will. Now, the human will of Jesus is, um, is, is remains in his, in his human nature. So, so there, it, it's, it is, the purpose of the Chalcedonian formula is to, is to state how we are to continue to affirm that the divinity, the divine logos, the divine nature of Christ is the part of the triune God. It's, it's just one with the Father and Son, Father and Spirit, but it is united to the human nature, which is mutable and changeable and has its own will. So when, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Lord, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is he talking there about two divine wills, the, the, the will of the divine Father and the will of the divine Son that need to come into alignment? No. He's talking about the will of the Father, which is the same as the will of the divine nature of Christ, and the human will, which needs to come into alignment with both. The, the will of the Father and the eternal Son are already in alignment. They already are one. It's the human will of Jesus that needs to be reconciled to them. So it, so it is Jesus speaking in his humanity when he's, and, and of course, Athanasius says, you know, all through the, he says, we know that Jesus Christ is both God and man. So whenever we read a text in the Bible, we need to ask ourselves, is this text referring to the divine nature or the human nature? And so when we, when we come to a passage like the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and, we, and we see there a, a, the will of, of Christ needing to be submitted to the will of the Father, well, obviously, Athanasius would say that means we're, we're looking at a text that is talking about the human will, because it's the human will that needs to align with the divine will. It's not the divine will that needs to align with itself. Does that, does that make sense? It does. I guess it might go into the area of, um, like, uh, the unfathomable, where I think that might be what I'm struggling with, is that how, how can... The, the the trinity of the godhead have the human nature of christ the human will the human will how does that interact with the the divine because he's still one with them but but the human nature didn't exist until until he was incarnate correct yes the uh the um human nature is created uh, by an, a miracle in the womb of Mary, uh, using her genetic material and male genetic material created ex, ex nihilo, so that a human nature comes into existence that did not uh, exist before. And that human nature is, um, is fully human. So, th so that's the Chalcedonian teaching that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, fully human and fully divine. And the two natures are never confused with each other. They're never mixed together. They're never, that one is not transmuted into the other. 
the the human nature is united to the person of Christ without the divine nature changing, and the divine nature remains divine even as the human nature is is it's a union, it's a hypostatic union, um, in such a way that whatever can be said of either nature can be said of the person. So if if for example, if we say that. Uh, the, um, if we say that Christ suffered, which we do say, he suffered on the cross, he suffered in his humanity. The divine nature in itself didn't suffer, but the, but the human nature did suffer. And so anything that can be said of either nature can be said truly of the person. So the person suffered, but he suffered in his humanity. And he was perfect in his divinity. So he, the, um, the, the definition of Chalcedon is not designed to explain how this works. The definition of Chalcedon is designed to explain what we confess about Jesus Christ in order to maintain both his full divinity and his full humanity and to avoid uh, disturbing the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's, it's telling us what we must say. We must say that the divine nature remains immutable. We must say that the human nature suffers. We must say that the person suffers. But how the person can suffer in his humanity without the divine nature being affected is a mystery. It, it's not, it's not, there, Chalcedon is not trying to give the, 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 the rational explanation of how that could be. That, in order to do, in order to give a rational explanation of how that could be, it would have to explain that the it would have to comprehend the divine nature, which is precisely what we can't do. Thanks for your answer; it was helpful. There's also a question from this morning. You quoted from Isaiah six, and Jesus quotes that in Mark's gospel talking about the parable of the sower. Do you see that as being reaffirming what you said, that it was a period of judgment coming to an end or before the cross in Mark chapter four? Maybe, maybe ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, I might turn and be forgiven. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. So it, it's partly the technology and it's partly my bad hearing. So I'm going to ask you to repeat your question. I, you, we're talking Mark 4. And what exactly was the question again? Jesus quotes those words from Isaiah 6, which you mentioned this morning, which you said was judgment worked out in, in Israel through that period. Well, why did he quote it after that parable? Why did he, why did Jesus speak to Israel in parables? Why did he actually quote those words to the disciples about uh, the parables not being understood? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really not, I'm really not picking up on what you're saying. Um, I'm interested why Jesus quotes those words in Isaiah after that parable of the sower to his disciples. Mm-hmm. Is he making the point that uh, Israel is, is still under judgment 
because he's now come as the Messiah and they haven't recognized it. Okay, um, yeah. In, in Mark 4, 12, he's quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And um, Jesus is... Jesus is basically Jesus is basically recapitulating the ministry of Isaiah. This is a fascinating um, a fascinating aspect of Jesus' self understanding of his mission. He sees himself as a second Isaiah, and he comes to Israel and he preaches to Israel, knowing in advance that Israel is going to reject him. So just as Isaiah knows that. Israel will reject his preaching and end up in exile. Jesus knows that, that Israel will reject him and he will end up on the cross. And Jesus accepts that as his, uh, as his mission. He accepts the fact that it's going to happen. And he accepts the fact that only a remnant, just as only a remnant believed Isaiah's message, only a remnant will believe his message. And so he speaks to the remnant in, in, in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said, uh, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But to those outside, everything is in parables. And he's, he's saying that he does not expect them because of their spiritual hostility, because they because they don't really worship the God of Israel, even though they're the purported leaders of Israel. Because they are in rebellion against God, they're not going to understand the message, but he expects them to understand it because to them is given the secret of the kingdom of God. They're, they have spiritual understanding because they have recognized him as the Messiah. They're following him. And so, so he, he gives them the explanation of the parable. But the, the, um, the, the whole ministry of Jesus is very interesting because he... he um, in Luke, we have we have a similar kind of thing um, with, with regard to the parables. In in Luke, he says he says something similar. He's basically saying, "I have come, and I'm preaching to Israel, and I am I am going to be rejected by Israel, and their rejection of me is a sign of their rejection of Yahweh." And so he. He is, um, in, a, in a way, his, his whole ministry is a ministry of judgment. Um, yeah, I think it's in Luke 13 that he quotes Isaiah more extensively. Um, no, um, I, I can't put my, my finger on the verse right now, but at the end of Luke 13, that there was the lament over Jerusalem in which he expresses the same idea. Other, other questions? Oh, um, if I can roll kind of two, two related questions into one, um, you, you've spoken about how the, the idols, the gods of the nations are really demonic forces that are deceiving, deceiving the nations. 
Um, how then do we understand the nations when they're doing battle with each other and very much see their gods involved in that battle? Um, do we see any parallel within the, the forces of darkness? And, and the reason I'm asking that is because, of course, we read, don't we, of the Lord Jesus saying he possibly could, he couldn't possibly be casting out demons in the power of Beelzebub because Satan knows that a divided kingdom can't stand. Um, so I'm, ju I'm just wondering along those realms. And, and then related to that, do we see any parallel in terms of Christ casting out the demons um, in his ministry? Uh, is there any, how do we relate that to the, the uh, fallen angels at work in the Old Testament? Um, if you could answer along those lines. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um... The relationship of the of the demons to the fallen spiritual entities that rule is a very complicated one, um, because the um, yeah it, our, we we tend to think of one category of of things angels unfallen and fallen. And then we tend to call all of the unfallen, oh, sorry, all of the fallen angels, demons. Um, that's kind of sloppy, really. That there, It's a lot more complex than that. Part of the problem is that the Bible never, never spells out a, a systematic angelology and demonology. And um, all we get are these scattered references and hints. Um, I think... Um, there are those who, th some scholars would say that the demons are not the same thing as the, um, the ruling forces, the, the, uh, the, the ruling entities that are the gods of the nations. Uh, but it's very complicated. In Deuteronomy, um, the Hebrew word shedim, which uh, is translated demons, the gods of the nations are actually called demons. They're called Shedim. And I'm not convinced that, that, that that's meant to be a systematic ontological statement. I'm not convinced that, that the Bible is telling us at that point that all the gods of the, of the nations are exactly ontologically equal to demons. I think it's, a, it's an insult. Uh, I think that you, I think it's like saying, um, these gods of the nations, which are much higher in rank and much more powerful than the demons who are lower class things. Uh, it's calling them demons is, is insulting them. And I think they're, they, they're deliberately being insulted. Um, and that's the point. So, um, yeah, our demon, all I can say is that there are, there are various gradations and classes of these beings, they are divided according to uh, function as well as rank and power. There are many of them. We don't, it's, it's not really possible, I don't think, to reconstruct an absolutely comprehensive systematic uh, categorization of them. Um, I don't think they're all in, they're not all one big unified army under the command of Satan. I don't see that as. Uh, as being um, as being necessarily a conclusion that we should draw. Um, when Jesus says about the about you know if I by the power of Beelzebub cast out demons, 
and the kingdom is divided against itself. What he's basically saying is, uh, I am, I am opposing this whole, this whole, whatever you call it, of 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 evil forces, evil spiritual beings. I am opposed to them. I'm on one side; they're on the other side, and so uh, I'm not part of them. Um, but I don't know that he's saying that these these forces never fight amongst themselves because um, it does seem that Egypt fights Babylon and the Assyrians conquer Egypt and so on. And so these gods who are inspiring the various nations, uh, I see them as being, um, well, because they're evil and disloyal and untrustworthy and liars and self-seeking, uh, it's no surprise that they would fight among themselves. And yet um, you could have, uh, you know, we see in human history, enemies that fight amongst themselves, uniting together against a common enemy in a crisis. So there, there can be, you know, the, the, both things can be true. It can be true that the gods of the nations are rivals and they fight against each other, but can also be true that they would unite against a common foe when the, the Lord's Messiah appears and confronts them. Uh, can I just ask about um, 1 Peter 3 when Christ goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison how does this sort of fit in with what you've been talking about um, with the sons of God is, is when and how does Christ preach to the spirits if they are that type of spirit oh great that's what I get for bringing up demons <laughs> I was hoping that uh, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be. I wouldn't be asked about that because I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I really don't know what to make of this whole. The references in Second Peter and Jude to preaching to the spirits in prison. It's uh, it's 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 deeply mysterious. Um, I I can argue both sides of the, of the both alternatives, and I don't know. What to make of it myself. I think that, um, see, part of the issue is to what extent is the, um, the worldview of the book of Enoch being ratified or affirmed in the New Testament? And I think that's a subject that needs a lot more study. Um, certainly, the, the idea of the watchers, the, uh, the 70 who fall from heaven in the book of Enoch and who land on Mount Hermon and then become the, they become the, uh, the ones who are basically the gods of the nations. There are 70 watchers and there are 70 nations in, in the table of nations in, in Genesis 10. Um, I, 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 the problem is that, that the book of Enoch if you take the book of Enoch as true and you interpret the New Testament, the scattered New Testament references in the light of Enoch being true, you can work out a whole system. Michael Heiser has done this. He has worked out a whole um, angelology, demonology on the basis of basically assuming that, the, that, the, that when the New Testament refers to 
the spirits in prison, that it is referring to the spirits in prison as described in the Book of Enoch and that everything in the Book of Enoch is basically true. And it may be, just because the Book of Enoch is not canonical scripture does not mean it's all false. Um, you know, um, my book is, is not canonical scripture, but I hope it's not all false. I mean, <laughs> Second Temple Judaism can preserve legends and traditions that may be true, um, even though the books in which those legends and traditions are, are included do not make their way into the canon of scripture. So this is the problem. When, when the New Testament quotes Enoch, is only what it quotes, uh, should only that be considered as authoritatively true? Or is it quoting Enoch because these, the writers of scripture are implying that Enoch, the total worldview of Enoch is true? Uh, I don't know how to resolve that. I'm not, I'm not sure. I do think, however, that more research into um, the, the view of angels and demons in Second Temple Judaism and relating that to various passages in the New Testament, such as uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and, and 12, um, and uh, Ephesians, Colossians and Ephesians 6 and the Gospels and elements of the book of Revelation, like Understanding, the more we understand about the Second Temple Judaism um, background to the New Testament, the better we'll be in a position to make an evaluation of to what extent is the Second Temple Judaism worldview being assumed by the worldview of by being assumed by the New Testament writers. And to what extent can we uh, see the New Testament as an expression of that worldview? And that will determine then how much of that worldview is uh, is is to be taken as true. As to whether the Jesus preached the spirits in prison during the period between the crucifixion and resurrection, the reformed position is that the descent into hell is um, simply another way of saying that Christ totally, completely died, and that his death, he, he suffered everything in death that, that we suffer. Um, but other strands of Christian tradition, besides the reform, have emphasized the idea of descent into hell and, and Jesus setting, it, setting free the, the spirits there who are in Hades, but they're not in, a, in the fiery torment. They are, they are Old Testament saints who have not been admitted to heaven yet, and he, and he takes those to heaven with him uh, at the time of his uh, of his. Uh, is his crucifixion. I, I'm sorry not to be, um, uh, I'm not. I'm sorry not to be able to really give you a definitive answer as to what I think. I'm, I'm still thinking about this. Um, my default position is to affirm the reformed position on everything, but I'm not sure. Uh, Heiser makes some very good points. Um, so uh, uh, this is to be. Uh, this is to be determined. There's a question I'd like to ask from this morning's session, please. Um, it's talking about es eschatology. And so this coming Sunday, I'm actually preaching from Second Peter regarding um, judgment by fire. And of course, you know, 
when it comes to the whole climate change hysteria, folk just haven't got this, it just isn't even in their thinking, of course, you know, and um, it's founded on the evolution myth and it's got no concepts of the future or, or what we're progressing towards. And, um, you know, you have to conclude that as much as we still care for the planet, the, the whole hysteria is actually a diversion to people's souls. So what exactly is the question? Okay, so we're just, it just links into one of your, um, it's about five, ten minutes, about five, ten minutes this morning was talking about how um, our sort of cultural thinking today, just our, the worldview that people have. And of course, you know, there's just no sense whatsoever in climate change movement regarding what, what, what really will happen in the future. Yeah. Uh, so are you asking if, uh, if we should interpret uh, the, the Peter passage as predicting climate change? No, no, just, just the opposite. is isn't, isn't so much a question, it's just more of a comment, really. Um, you know, that this, this, this is going to be God's, God's going to judge by, by his word. Just, I mean, the whole argument of Peter is that God sent the flood. And it's just this whole, you know, for want of a better phrase, we should be, or people should be much more concerned about their souls rather than, you know, trying to save a planet. Well, yes. Um, the, um, yes, I mean, as society secularizes and leaves behind Christian eschatology, um, a, vo a void is created, and uh, um, the old secularization thesis that was popular in the 1960s and 70s has pretty much been disproven. The idea, the secularization thesis said that as society becomes more technologically advanced and more scientific, religion declines and, and secularism and materialism take over and religion just eventually disappears. Um, that was the secularization thesis. And the secularization thesis has been completely disproven in the last 50 years because you take um, things like, you know, the, the resurgence of militant Islam, um, the Iranian revolution. Um, after a period of modernity, uh, Iran becomes more religious again. In the West, we see, we, uh, we see the rise of, of many pagan ideas. Um, we, we see the rise of pantheism, polytheism, so what, what we, what I think we see in the climate change movement is um, partly a secular eschatology. Uh, and, and we see a kind of a, a new religion emerging. I think actually the new religion that is emerging is Gnostic uh, in, in the West, the main religion, but it's all very confused and mixed up and, and there are various aspects of it that are kind of getting sorted out. Um, the main difference between the, the Christian outlook and the secular or the pagan is the, uh, it's what I've been hammering away about all week. And that is that the, the, the mythological way of thinking sees the cosmos as a closed 
uh, entity and every all reality is within the cosmos. There's nothing outside the cosmos. There's no God outside the cosmos who's transcendent, but there's, there's only the cosmos. And so you can regard God as the cosmos itself, or you can regard God as a being within it. But, but the cosmos is all there ever was and ever will be. So, of course, if you, if you think that, the, uh, that climate change is harming our planet, and if you think that the cosmos is all there is, well, then obviously uh, the destruction of the planet would mean the destruction of the race, and it would be, it would be a cataclysmic event. So you, 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 you sort of, I think unconsciously, draw on Christian eschatological ideas to, to, uh, to, um, to, to create a scenario in which you are trying to save the planet, i.e. attain salvation, and bring about heaven um, it, through imminent processes and imminent means. So in that sense, I think um, the difference between the climate change future and what Peter's talking about is Peter is talking about the complete transformation of the space-time continuum, the, the complete transformation of the cosmos into the uh, new heavens and new earth. And there's no room for that sort of thing in the modern mythological way of thinking. That's the, right. The only the, the current reality can can evolve and and change, but it 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 never actually gets acted upon or transformed from the outside into something new. Uh, that never happens in the in the modern in the modern way of thinking. And that's an example of of how the West has descended into mythological thinking. Mythological mm -hmm. thinking says there's no outside transcendent God that can transform the world, the world could just evolve. Um, and so whatever is here now will always be here in some form, it may evolve and change, but it's not going to be fundamentally transformed. Yep, great, yeah. Yeah. thank you. One question, um, I listen to Jordan Peterson on YouTube occasionally, and he challenges some of the transgender ideology is there a Christian voice in Canada expressing some of the thoughts you've been telling us? Are, are there what in Canada? A Christian voice expressing some of the things you've been telling us? Uh, I'm sorry. Um, you probably think I have an accent and uh, and, uh, and, <laughs> and and I of course, from my perspective, uh, accents are relative, and so I think you have an accent. So I'm having trouble with it. Between between accents and my bad hearing, and less than perfect technology, that's what I'm struggling with. Sorry, could you try again? I'll speak slower. I listen to Jordan Peterson occasionally, who does challenge the transgender uh, pronoun aspect of Canada. Is there a Christian voice expressing this? Is there a Christian voice expressing which? About transgender ideology and, and this, this whole concept which you've been mentioning this, this week about the effect on our Western approach to, to such things. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not catching what you're asking. It seems like you're asking... Is there a Christian voice expressing the view that I'm expressing in these lectures? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. 
is there much of a Christian voice expressing the view of uh, the, the transcendence of God and so on, as opposed to the mythological thinking? Yeah. Um, well, I, th I think that, um, yes, there are, there, are, um, there are faithful Christians in every country um, that are trying to, to do good theology. I think, however, that um, we're, we're I guess, I guess I'm looking at the trajectory. The trajectory is going in the wrong direction. I see, I'm, I'm seeing evangelicalism uh, moving from a position of being relatively more faithful to a position of being relatively less faithful. In other words, I'm seeing the liberalization of, of evangelicalism. So I'm not sure if that was what you're getting at, but um, I, in terms of a process, Historically, I think the process that's occurring is that um, we are going through a second fundamentalist modernist controversy, a second great defection of evangelical. From, from the 1870s to 1930, there was a, a, a real movement away from evangelical Christianity toward liberalism. And this movement took over most of the major Christian institutions in the West, most of the main denominations. Um, and then there was this big resurgence of evangelicalism after World War II uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where evangelicalism, which had been thought to be almost dead, made a big comeback, and conservative Christianity became, uh, you know, established new institutions, new mission boards, new seminaries, new, new publishing houses, etc. And what I'm seeing now is that it seems to me that we're living through a period in which um, evangelicalism, having become very broad, very large, very successful, is now seeing a very large segment of its own uh, membership and institutions split off and and do the same, repeat the process that happened between 1870 and 1930. There's another slide into liberalism. So um, I think that the, uh, the the doctrine of God is the key doctrine. Um, there are many key doctrines, of course. You can talk about atonement. You can talk about inerrancy of scripture. You can talk about creation. But I think that that the doctrine of God is sort of flying below, below the radar. It's not. It's not at everybody's. Most people don't have the doctrine of God at the top of their list as um, in defining where the battle is raging at the moment in terms of. Um, preventing the slide into liberalism and reaffirming orthodoxy. I think that the doctrine of God is um, the most important issue. And I think it's where we are seeing, um, we are seeing heresy take over the church. Um, and if evangelicalism was not in as much peril as I think, then I don't think we would see the kinds of um, worrisome um, departures from classical theism that we do see even among very conservative and very and even in some cases very reformed um, theologians. So if, uh, I would commend to you James Dozell's book, All That Is In God, uh, because in that book he, he gives examples of people um, who are departing from from uh, from classical theism and embracing theistic, what he calls theistic mutualism, which is very similar to what I'm talking about as relational theism. It 
basically the same thing. Uh, it, it's not that that John Cobb or Alfred North Whitehead or Jürgen Moltmann say things that are incompatible with classical theism that should worry us. It's that it's that these things are coming into the heart of evangelicalism. Um, you know, the open theist movement and uh, and and certain even certain Reformed theologians who talk about um, God as being both mutable in one sense and, and immutable in another. Um, you know, uh, even somebody as solid as a John Frame has some very worrisome things to say along these lines. And so it's the, it's the, it's the penetration into evangelical and reformed thinking of, uh, of, of questionable concepts of God that I think is, uh, is something that we need to be very, very concerned about. And it used to be the case that evangelicals could depend on the Anglicans and the Catholics to do good work in patristics and to, uh, to present, to keep the, 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 the classical doctrine of God in the forefront. And uh, although there still is being good work being done um, on, on classical Christianity, um, increasingly there's also in those denominations, there is increasingly openness to liberal theology. So the, the situation is becoming more confused. And, and I think we, in another couple of generations are going to be much more, we're gonna be much more confused even than we are now about uh, what exactly the classical orthodox doctrine of God is. Um, and so that's why I wanna talk about it, why I think it's important to, to study at this point. Thank you. So, um, okay, well, thank you very much for your attention. And tomorrow we will look at, uh, um, I will give a, a lecture on the, um, uh, speaking more about the specifics of, of uh, contemporary theology and the challenge before us. And then we'll have another Q and A and we'll bring our time to a close. So thanks very much for your, for your participation and your questions. And there'll be lots of time for more questions tomorrow. So jot them down if you have them and save them up. Thank you.